Now you know. When you come up in the elevator, it took you seven minutes. Well, this way down, you want to get down in a hurry, would take you 30 seconds. <laughs> well, of course, we uh, don't uh, recommend that. Hello, and a warm welcome to the Trap One podcast. This is Jason, guest hosting from Brooklyn, New York. This is the first of what I hope will become a four-part documentary series chronicling the new adventures. During the month of recording, June 2021, Doctor Who fandom, well, some of us, observed the 30th anniversary of the first new adventure, Time Worm Genesis, written by John Peel and released in June 1991. Operating on what was then a bi-monthly release schedule, the New Adventures released four books throughout 1991. The first three, including Exodus by Terence Dix and Apocalypse by Nigel Robinson, were all penned by veterans of the Target novelizations. John Peel wrote four, five if you include the two-volume Daleks Master Plan. Nigel Robinson also wrote four, Five, if you include the still-unreleased audio-only novelization of An Unearthly Child, Terrence Dix wrote 64. In December 1991 came a different book, Time Worm Revelation, not written by a Target veteran, but rather by a 23-year-old fan writing his first novel. The end result was quite different from the first three, and would go on to have a profound influence on not only the next 57 new adventures to follow, but on the revived Doctor Who series from 2005 onward. In all, Virgin Publishing released 60 new adventures featuring the seventh Doctor. The new adventures, on their back cover, promised novels that were, quote, too broad and deep for the small screen, and carried on the adventures of the seventh Doctor and Ace, and later, three companions original to the new adventures, following directly on from Survival, the last televised classic series story. In 1997, as Virgin Publishing lost their Doctor Who license, came a single Eighth Doctor novel, The Dying Days, and then about two more years' worth of books starring former companion Bernice Summerfield and a host of supporting characters. Over the coming months, we'll be exploring those first 61 Doctor Who new adventures. We'll be talking with some of the authors who wrote those books, We'll be talking with people who've written about those books, and we'll be talking with people whose careers and even lives were influenced by those books with the distinctive white spines. Earlier this year, Mark produced a feature-length episode of Trap One focusing on the target novelizations. I contributed an audio essay to that episode, talking about my experience discovering the target books on suburban Long Island, New York, on Super Bowl Sunday, 1985. And I talked about how that book-buying experience pervaded my dreams, literally restructured the way my brain thinks, such that to this day I still dream of standing in bookshops, trying to purchase Doctor Who fiction. I still remember where I saw my first new adventures. This was 1991. I hadn't yet discovered Records Doctor Who, had never read an issue of Doctor Who magazine, didn't know anyone really. I was a college freshman and had made the conscious choice to not advertise my Doctor Who fandom to all. I did have a small, glossy photo from Death of the Daleks hanging on my college dorm wall. That's John Pertwee and John Abeniri staring down a balsa wood Dalek prop, spray-painted light silver. But I had a much larger poster of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, 
from Spectre of the Gun right over that to take attention away from Doctor Who. However, I did learn there were other Doctor Who fans on campus in my freshman dorm. A guy named Rich from North Attleboro, Massachusetts had also become a Doctor Who fan in the 80s. His PBS station would have been WGBH, Channel 38, out of Boston, where mine was WLIW, Channel 21, out of Garden City, New York, which is neither a city nor particularly famous for its gardens, but I digress. Rich had found Genesis and Exodus in a local off-campus bookseller, the now-defunct Gordon's Booksellers in the Rotunda Mall in Baltimore. I raced over to buy the books myself, but unfortunately, Gordon's was sold out. However... Back home on Long Island, over Thanksgiving break, I went back to the same Walden Books and the same shopping mall where I bought my first novelizations almost seven years earlier. And there they were, Genesis and Exodus, right on the shelf. I was 18 years old and full of angst. I just had a terrible Thanksgiving that had seen the dissolution of a very significant friendship. I needed an escape. I had been sick. I needed healing. I needed medicine. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that what I really needed right then was a doctor. I started reading The Two New Adventures as soon as I got home that day. This would have been Saturday, November 30th, 1991. I continued to read them as I took the Amtrak back down to Baltimore the next day for the resumption of class. I was sitting on the train next to a college friend, Lee, whom I bumped into on the Long Island Railroad, but I paid the books a lot more attention than him. Sorry, Lee. It didn't take more than a few days to finish Genesis and Exodus. Over winter break, I went back to the Walden Books back home and picked up Apocalypse, which was adequate, but which didn't transport me quite the way that Genesis or Exodus had done. After that, it was another six months before I found any other new adventure in any bookstore. They hadn't really penetrated the U.S. market back then, and for a cash-poor kid operating years before Amazon opened for business, I didn't have much chance of getting them by other means. But I did discover Recarts Doctor Who in April 1992, which at that point was just discovering the joys of the N.A.s, in lieu of debating stories from the now-canceled classic series. Side note, my very first post to R.A.D.W. was a celebration of State of Decay, but the news group increased my thirst for the new adventures, and by late 1992, with the books about to go monthly, I quickly became a full disciple a young man who would drop everything each month to buy that new book and read it as quickly as possible. The NAs, as we call them, there are some folks online now who call them the VNAs for Virgin Publishing, but we didn't use that term back in the day and it still sounds wrong to me, were not towering literature. They were not the works of Umberto Eco or even Michael Chabon. But they were new Doctor Who at a time when there was no new Doctor Who from anywhere else. The very young men and one women who wrote these books featured a large percentage of alumni who would go on to write other Doctor Who, other Virgin books, the later BBC books, Big Finish audios, and the new TV series itself. A little later on this broadcast, we'll talk to the authors of Bookworm, the book which probes and celebrates, and when necessary, teases and mocks those 61 first new adventures. For the seven years that the N.A.s were in publication with the Doctor, they were a major focus of Doctor Who fandom, and their influence has now long outlasted the cessation of the book line. When I talk about why I love Doctor Who, I'm not just talking about the TV episodes. I'm talking about the new adventures, too. Many scenes and lines from these books remain part of my vocabulary, and much later in the line, I was privileged to contribute one sentence to one book. That's a pretty good legacy to have.
I even wrote one off-license and most decidedly never submitted to Virgin, Draft a New Adventure, for all Doctor Who creative, which led me to form some surprising friendships. My own unpublished N.A. was nearly a direct ripoff of Daniel Blythe's November 1993 new adventure, The Dimension Riders, but imitation is, as they say, the sincerest form of flattery. Over the next two hours or so, we'll have three interviews with people who've written for or about the N.A.'s. We'll have guest readings from a couple of pretty distinguished podcasters, and we'll conclude with a panel discussion about the four 1991 books. We'll be back in a few more months after that to discuss the 1992 and 1993 NAs. But first up on the mic is the man who wrote the very first new adventure, Time Worm Genesis. Here's my interview with John Peel and quite a few of his avian friends. We are thrilled to have with us for our next interview the author of the very first new adventure. If you came of age with Doctor Who books in the late 80s and 1990s, the name John Peel certainly loomed very large in your life between his nonfiction work his epic-length novelizations of several black-and-white Dalek stories, and, of course, his original fiction. Time Worm Genesis, the first new adventure, was released 30 years ago this month, and John is here today to talk with us about it. Uh, in a word or two, John, how did you first get involved writing Doctor Who fiction? Um, through Terry Nation. Terry um, originally was approached every now and again by Target Books to allow you know them to do the novelizations of um, the various Dalek adventures that were still um, unnovelized. And um, he and I were working on a project together, and he, when they asked him if they could do more Dalek books, he said, on one condition, if John Peel writes them. Um, and I, I think if he'd said, if, if you know, on one condition, if my trained monkey can write them, they would have said yes, because it was a Dalek story, and um, they would have been happy. So they, they had no problems with giving me the, um, the go-ahead. And it was from that that I moved on to the New Adventures um, series, of course. The first time that I came across you in the bookstore would have been when I was about 16 or so, when the novelization of The Chase came out. And then, a few months after that, I discovered part two of the novelization of the Daleks' master plan, which worried me because I didn't have part one, which fortunately showed up a couple of weeks later. How did Daleks' master plan come to be two books instead of one? Oh, well, that was my doing. Um, I was a huge reader, of course, of the novelizations, and uh, I had every one to that point. And they had gotten shorter and shorter over the years. And as a result of which, when uh, they asked me to do um, originally the chase, uh, I said, as long as it's not going to be one of the 128-page incredibly large type versions. And they said, no, 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 you can do whatever you like. Um, so when we came to doing the master plan, I, I called the editor up and I said, look, master plan is 13 episodes, basically. I am not going to write that as a small book. Uh, because that was what they'd done with the war games, with 10 episodes into a tiny book. I said, uh, you know, to do it justice, it has to be either one long book or two short books. And they said, well, whichever you prefer. And I said, all right, well, we'll do it as two short books. And they said, yep, fine, we can do that. We can release them one one month and one the next. It'll be perfect. Okay. Uh, and I called Terry up and I said to Terry, okay. Um, I'm going to be doing Master Plan next, 
and it's going to be two books. And I told him that, that I've been offered either one book or two books. So he said to me, all right, John, no problem. Just one question. Why did you pick two books rather than one really big book? And they said, well, if we do two books, we get two advances. And Terry just burst into laughing and he said, John, now you are starting to think like a writer. <laughs> so um, partly the reason I did that, in fact, was so that I could see that there were going to be original novels coming up sometime because there really weren't at that point very many left uh, the TV stories to actually novelize. So I wanted to do the break between book one and book two to allow some space so that um, we could uh, continue having uh, Sarah Kingdom as, an, as a companion because I just loved the character. So I, I, I wanted to make sure that there was room where writers could put her into the storylines. Um, so that, that was the other real reason why I... Um, I went for the two-book deal. <laughs> Although, in the event, when they finally did the Missing Adventures starting in 1994, I don't think they ever did a Sarah Kingdom book, which was a unfortunate missed opportunity because, like you say, she was terrific. And I reread the two Master Plan novelizations every few years, and I'll try and read one episode a night, so it takes 13 days. And it's just, if you haven't read those books, please stop what you're doing, pause the interview, read the books, and then come back and rejoin us. So, John, you mentioned um, bridging the gap between the novelizations, which ran out probably around 1990 or so, and then the new adventures, which, of course, start uh, 30 years ago this month. Looking at the foreword to Time Worm Genesis, written by the line editor Peter Darvel Evans, he mentions all the names who were involved in the planning and the continuity sessions behind the, the early books, and your name is, of course, on the list. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. What were those planning sessions like? I have no idea. <laughs> um, you see, at this point, almost all of the planning sessions were taking place in London, and I was living in New York, so my contributions were to send things off to them and then get a response later. Um, so I, I really have no idea what the planning sessions were like. I know it sounds peculiar, but that's the case. Oh, what I imagine. What is that Peter Darville Evans would talk to me. I would send him material, and then, if he remembered, he'd talk to me again later about it. But that was pretty much it. I was, I was actually almost entirely on my own when I was writing the first book. I guess 1991 would have been the early stages of email, and certainly Zoom links like this were not going to be possible uh, way back when. Well, in fact, um, at the time, I was living in an apartment. What would happen was that I would go to a local business firm, and he, they would fax material to um, Peter Darvel Evans for me. And then I would have to call up and ask Peter, did you get the material? Have you read it? And then he would um, respond to that. So we not only did we not have email, we really had nothing but faxing um, as an alternative to the um, to the mail. That was literally all we had. Uh, it, it did complicate matters considerably. <laughs> So it's a wonder that you didn't accidentally fax uh, the wrong chapter to the wrong business and have your uh, 
Chapter 7, for example, wind up at a rival publisher. <laughs> yeah, um, we had a lot of um, fun, really, with all of this. What basically happened was that I had to... Well, um, let me think about this one. Peter originally pitched his idea to me, which was very vague, really. And I had to work from that to create um, a, a kind of outline of what I saw the time worm as being, which was then passed via fax from um, the, the company I was using um, to Peter, and then Peter passed the um, outline along to the other writers. Because we were actually, I believe we were all four of us writing at the same exact time. So we really couldn't uh, coordinate between us. It, it wasn't as if I had a whole lot of material that I could send to Terence, for example, um, or that he had a lot that he could send to you know, um, the other uh, writers. We, we were all writing in pretty much isolation, and um, all that we were really going on was Peter's original idea and then my outline from the idea. So uh, it, the, the work of coordinating the four books was entirely Peter's. Uh, making sure we were all on the, you know, on the same page, so to speak. And that does make sense, because the second and third books in the series, the Terrence book and the Nigel Robinson book, uh, both feature the time worm only minimally in epilogues and prologues, and otherwise those are fairly self-contained stories. But right. it fell to you, of course, to write The Origin, and what fascinated me most about Genesis, I got it probably, I think, November 1991. This is my freshman year of college, and I got it when I was home on break. And I had just read the Gilgamesh epic as a college freshman, probably about a month earlier. And here you are writing the very first original Doctor Who novel, and it takes place during the very first book ever written, which was a terrific idea. How much of that was on you, and how much of that would have been on the line editor? Ah, well, what happened was I was very keen to be the very first person to write an original approved Doctor Who novel. So I, I pitched very hard to Peter um, about ideas. And what, he finally called me up one day and said, John, good news for you, we're doing the original stories. And then he gave me the, the brief idea of what the time worm was about. So I immediately, I mean immediately, sat down, wrote up an outline, and then faxed it to him. And um, then I got a phone call from Peter saying, ah, yes, well, um, my original outline, I, I came up with this idea because he was talking about the, the time, time worm in very vague terms. And I came up with an idea about a planet where the time worm ruled this world and used people's brains, if you like, as floppy disks. Um, when they weren't thinking, they were thinking for the time worm. So it, they would have this sort of periods where they would switch themselves on and off, which, to, you know, caused confusion. And um, Peter called me up and said, Ah, John, I really forgot to mention one major point. I wanted the time worm first book to be set in Mesopotamia. <laughs> And I was like, ah, yes, you forgot to mention that part. <laughs> so then he said, have you ever read the Epic of Gilgamesh? And I, I, I mean, I literally reached up 
wrote for the, um, the bookshelf next to my phone and said, got it right here, one of my favourites. So he said, oh, good, I'm talking to the right person, obviously. <laughs> he said, you know, because he wanted to start it with the Mes- with, um, story in Mesopotamia, then Terence would do one in the modern day, then Nigel would do one in the, um, in the future, and then, you know, Paul would wind it up in wherever. Um, it was a progression through time that he wanted, but he forgot to mention that part to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to literally come up with another outline overnight again, um, and this one became Genesis. So for Terence to research his World War II novel, part of which he would have been alive for, I can't imagine that required a whole lot of stretching. You, however, are relating a tale that took place probably about 5,000 years ago, give or take a few centuries. How do you go about researching things that happened in the year 2500 BC? It was fun, because, I mean, I love that kind of um, historical period. So I already had um, quite a few books in my library on the subject. I mean, I I didn't even have to go to my wife's library, Uh, my wife being a a library director is really helpful when it comes to research. I can imagine. Um, but I actually didn't need it. Need it. I, ha- I had plenty of books um, with the background material that was um, necessary for me. So um, it, that, that was, it, was, it was a subject I was interested in to begin with, even before Doctor Who. So, so when Peter suggested Mesopotamia, you were exactly 100% the right person to ask. What he realized, because I, um, I, I knew enough to, um, to begin with, um, I also knew where the problems were going to lie, because I said to him, look, um, if you've read the epic of Gilgamesh, you know Gilgamesh was not a nice person um, by modern standards. By their standards, he was a hero. By our standards, he was a real bastard, you know. But that's because of the whole issue of um, awareness and things. So I said, you know, we're going to have to have a a number of things that we can't downplay and everything. And I said, you know, there's going to have to be some mention of sex in this because poor old Gilgamesh was um, kind of noted for raping people. So you couldn't ignore that entire aspect of his character. So I could see where we would have problems as well as advantages. And you have a subplot in the book where one of Gilgamesh's counselors has sort of lost his wife's affections to Gilgamesh, and that triggers uh, one of the early subplots in in the book. Did you have any particular actors in mind when you were uh, mentally writing the roles? Actually, no. (laughs) It never occurred to me. I was just simply writing a story. Um, and I think would, and in fact, would probably be the case if I'd written a TV script, because the writers probably have absolutely zero influence on who gets to speak their lines anyway. So, um, no, no, I, I, I really didn't have any idea of who could do what. So, writing the first book in the series that comes to market, you also have the task of reintroducing the Seventh Doctor and Ace, who are the most recent TV Doctor and Companion. And the first two chapters where she appears, you have deprived Ace of her memories, and she has to sort of rediscover who she is, and the Doctor, of course, has to explain a lot of the TARDIS technology to her. 
And this segues into a series of flashbacks where the Fourth Doctor actually appears by a video recording, I imagine from the end of Invasion of Time, and introduces the notion of the Time Worm, which carries the rest of the, of the four-book series forward. So was this idea yours to introduce Ace kind of from the inside out and start off by showing us a previous Doctor from a previous adventure? Oh, part of it was my idea. What, um, when we were discussing the book, Peter said that he wanted to set this up as a continuation from the TV, but something separate. He, he always envisioned it not being read just by Doctor Who fans, but by science fiction fans generally. So he, he asked me specifically to write the first, the opening sequences in the TARDIS, um, where I could fill in the background um, as if it would be read by people who didn't understand the show. And um, I thought, well, okay, if I'm going to do that, one way to do it is to have Ace lose her memory and then I can explain it through Ace. As, as it's being explained to Ace, I am explaining it also to the reader, um, which seems like kind of fun. And plus, I just like the idea of doing terrible things to, to the characters. So, you know, blowing Ace's memory completely out of the window. Purely by accident, the Doctor doesn't realize he's even done it. Um, just struck me as being kind of a fun way of doing things. And, um, and then reintroducing it. The, the use of the Tom Baker Doctor was me just being fanish. I mean, I just thought... Let's, let's have a bit of fun here. Because I was told I couldn't really use any other doctors, even though in the book there's no limitations on it, of course. Um, I, I, I said, well, can I put a little cameo in? And, they, and Peter said, well, if you must. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I must, I must. Um, and, and I put in the, that little sequence. I couldn't resist it. When I first read the book, and again, I would have been, I guess, 18 years old, and that was... 30 years ago, because I'm 25 now, my favorite part of the book was towards the end when the seventh doctor has to defuse a bomb on about two minutes notice, and he no longer has the technical know-how. So he dials into the TARDIS telepathic circuits, and he has the third doctor make a return to do the tricky technical bits. And that, it didn't, of course, happen in subsequent new adventures, but having the third doctor jump in for the climax and help sort out the plot, I thought was a brilliant idea, especially for those of us who weren't the world's biggest Seventh Doctor fans at the time. I imagine a lot of that was your doing as well? Yes, that was me. Um, I, I just thought there's no particular reason why the Doctor couldn't have not merely the memories of his previous self, but it's essentially the persona still in his memory somewhere. And I, I, I was really trying to see how far we could push the format. So I was playing around with the um, with that idea that he was bringing back a previous soul who was much excuse me, <coughs> um, who was much cleverer at that particular kind of thing than he was. I mean, it's something you couldn't do on the TV. It would be very, very difficult to do. But in a novel, you can get away with something like that. And I thought, well, let, let's just try it and see. And if Peter didn't like it, he could always edit it out. But Peter actually liked it as much as I did, so we were okay. <laughs> and for a certain breed of fans who are 
overly critical of their continuity references, there had been, in one of the earlier Seventh Doctor stories, a passing reference that Ace could not carry a tune. Now, in your book, you have Sophie Aldred get quite a musical number in one of the early chapters. What was the thought process behind that? Well, what happened was um, I had been watching some of the um, McCoy adventures, but I hadn't seen them all at this point. And because over here in America, they hadn't all turned up at the same time. So I'd only seen, I think, about half of the episode. As a result of which, I must have missed that, that comment entirely. It was one of the episodes I hadn't seen. And I had just been to a convention in Chicago where Sophie was um, a guest, which is when I twisted her arm and had got her to write the introduction. Um, she's an absolute sweetheart. And when I said, would you like to write this? She was like, oh, yes, please. So I, I had no, it was really, really difficult to talk her into it, you know. Um, but at the convention, I heard her sing, and her, she has a lovely, lovely voice. And I thought, right, I'll put that in the book, give her a song to sing. Um, because, simply because I, I literally just heard her at the time singing. And um, as a result of which, Sophie can't make, make I, I guess what we can say is that Ace is more modest than she, um, she really ought to be about her singing ability. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was one of the problems. Um, there were a couple of other mistakes I made in the book because of this problem of not actually having seen all of the stories to that date. And um, what, what was happening is at the time I was also writing some Star Trek novels. And um, when you write Star Trek novels, Paramount is absolutely um, paranoid about continuity. So they would, if you wrote something in that was a little questionable, you'd get big red marks on the side of your manuscript saying, you know, what was, what, what the heck is this, you know, um, and, and what have you. So I was expecting the same thing to happen with the Doctor Who manuscript. I figured if I made any mistakes, you know, the BBC would catch it. It turns out the BBC probably didn't even read the book, uh, let alone um, try and correct it. So I was, I was making a, an assumption there, and um, Peter, knowing that I was pretty well up on Doctor Who, um, probably made the assumption that I knew what I was saying when I was writing it down, so there was no need to check me. So we were both working from completely different angles on continuity, I'm afraid which is why um, Ace remembers going Paradise Powers. <laughs> uh, yes, which uh, that theme was brought up a couple of times in later books, as some of the later writers tried to uh, smooth over some of the earlier books. But I guess it's the loss of the BBC if they didn't read Time Worm Genesis, because I know it was certainly what sold me on the new adventures sitting there back in 1991. Even rereading it this week in preparation for this interview, I found it tremendously uh, enjoyable especially going back to the, the Gilgamesh bits, which now that I am a little bit older than I was 30 years ago, I have a little more of a frame of reference for understanding. But, and I haven't heard this name spoken out loud in 30 years, so I'm probably going to butcher it, but Utnapishtim, who is the Noah-type character that helps out, you had mentioned towards the end of Genesis that he is part of an alien race that the Doctor has met before or will meet again, and 
I was not able with my old copy of the Lafacier program guide to figure out who that was. Did you have a, an alien race in mind for him? No, not really. I just um, I, I was trying to work the myth of Gilgamesh into um, a science fiction format. And that seemed to me just to be the easiest way to do the, the issue of, um, of the system. So it, it was just me playing around with the, with the format and the mythology. Um, it couldn't have been with anybody, I guess. <laughs> I'll leave it to the uh, reader to decide for themselves who it could be. So after Genesis came out, you were then, of course, kept very busy. You wrote the full-length novelizations of Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks, which are both terrific. And then you also got to write one of the very first Missing Adventures, which hopefully will be a podcast recording for Trap One for another day. Uh, the last time, John, that you and I met in person was at the Long Island Doctor Who Con right before the pandemic, and we were on a panel together about the Jodie Whittaker Doctor. Are you keeping up with Doctor Who today, and what's your take on the most recent TV seasons? Um, yes, um, for once, I'm actually up to date. Uh, really helpful having everything issued nowadays on Blu-ray and DVD, because that way it's up a lot easier. So I, I, as long as there's no further TV episodes beyond what's been released, I'm okay. Uh, I love Jodie's first season, absolutely adored it. Some of the stories were just marvelous. Her second season, um, not so much though. I, I think they kind of lost track of it, really, when they in some of the episodes. Um, but, you know, I, I think Jodie's a good doctor. And I love the, you know, Teen Tardis or, you know, the, the fans. Uh, I like that idea very much. And um, I've enjoyed the, the interplay between the characters. Reminded me so much of the Hartnell kind of era where you had the four characters interacting with one another and um, teaming up and disappearing. <laughs> so, yeah. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a pleasure. Now, I should point out that you have had some audio accompaniment to the back of the interview. Who are these special <laughs> guests you have in your home? Yes, yes, that's the um, My Wife's Lovebirds, uh, which tend to provide accompaniment to pretty much the whole day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, so... I, I tune them out, mostly, amazingly enough. I can actually tune them out, and I don't even realize that they're singing half the time. <laughs> they are very lovely. So, John, thanks again for joining us. We've been talking with John Peel, the author of Time Worm Genesis, the very first new adventure, which came out 30 years ago this month, in June 1991, although it feels more like five minutes ago. John, thanks again, and I hope to see you at the next convention. Yes, I hope so, too. Thank you. My thanks to John Peel for sitting with me. Time Worm Genesis came out in June 1991. That book was followed two months later by Terence Dix's Exodus, an alternate history World War II thriller featuring a returning character from Terence's TV scripts. Right now, we're pleased to present a reading from Chris from the all-new adventures of the Doctor Who Book Club podcast. Suddenly, there was a bustle of movement from the main room. Goering and Himmler leapt smartly aside, and Adolf Hitler himself came through the doorway. He seemed tired, drained, as if the speech had exhausted him. He looked curiously 
a little group by the door. What is this? Nothing, began Himmler. The booming voice of Goering overrode him. Mein Führer, this gentleman claims an acquaintance from the old days in Munich. Hitler's eyes flicked incuriously over the doctor. I have no recollection. Suddenly, the man stepped forward to confront him, piercing grey eyes locking with Hitler's bright blue. In some strange way, thought Goering, it was a meeting of equals. The prisoner's voice was urgent and compelling. Look more closely. Remember a time when you were in pain, in danger and in despair. Remember someone who eased the pain, took you to safety. I told you that one day you would rule Germany and that we should meet again. Hitler stared hard at him for a moment. Then he stepped forward and folded a stranger in a formal embrace. A gasp of astonishment went through the room. Hitler stepped back, looking delightedly at the newcomer. You have returned, Doctor, just as you said you would. And now you rule Germany, said the Doctor, just as I said you would. Hitler looked round the room, a hand on the Doctor's shoulder. This man gave me help in my darkest hour. More than that, he gave me hope. He believed in my success. There was a polite murmur of astonishment and applause. It was not a matter of belief, said the doctor calmly. I knew that you would rule. Just as I know now that you have many troubles, many enemies. That is why I have returned. Hitler regarded him intently. We shall talk again, very soon. He turned to the officers in his entourage. The doctor and his companion are the honoured guests of the Reich. Let suitable accommodation be found for him here at the Deutsche Hof. Tomorrow they return with me to Berlin. Thanks so much, Chris. Last month I had the opportunity to sit down with the two authors of a recent non-fiction book discussing the new adventures, novel by novel. We are joined now by the two authors of Bookworm Volume 1 of The New Adventures 1991-1997. through 1997. Bookworm was released by ATB Publishing in 2019 and recently enjoyed its second printing, helping it reach a wide new audience. As I've always said, if you're looking for a book about a particular niche of the Doctor Who experience, Stacy Smith has probably written one, and when she does, she shares it with us here on Trap 1. Stacy, who talks nearly as fast as I do, also has the remarkable ability to fit 45 minutes worth of speech into a 20-minute interview segment, making her a natural for this particular segment of our first NA episode. Stacy, welcome back to the program. <laughs> Thank you so much, and well, you are not wrong. <laughs> We're also happy to have with us Anthony Wilson, the co-author of Bookworm and the principal author of the entries on the four Time Worm books, which we're discussing on this episode. Anthony, we're very happy to have you on Trap One. And I'm enjoying being here. Uh, Stacy, I'm going to start off with a question for you. About a month ago, I was uh, alerted to the fact that Bookworm was trending on Twitter and probably not for reasons that you would have wanted. Uh, tell us exactly what happened and how you reacted to the uh, kerfuffle. 
Yes, I, I, I'd <laughs> woken up. Uh, I'm not on Twitter, right? So um, I woke up to a message from the publisher, Arnold T. Blomberg, saying, basically, we have a problem. And he was absolutely right. We have a problem. Uh, there was uh, some wording in the book that, out of context, is incredibly embarrassing. Uh, it's, it's something that, you know, looking at, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe we let this go through. Um, uh, part of it is that Bookworm was written in, in a lot of stages and some of it was many, many years ago, but it still doesn't excuse the fact that we should not have, have let this through in the way it was phrased. And it, it basically said that um, if you, you know, it was, it was looking at love and war um, and love and war, the, the aliens there are um, an analogy for HIV AIDS, which was, was you know, fairly new at the time of publication um, in the early 90s. And um, we basically said like the, the sort of nature of spread of the of the Houthi virus in love and war is different to the way that HIV AIDS spreads. And we were saying, well, one is you know caused by behavior and one is not. And this is not something that I'm particularly proud of. Uh, this should not have been said in this way. What we should have said was there is a very simple difference between an airborne respiratory disease, something like COVID, versus a sexually transmitted disease like HIV AIDS or you know, hepatitis or many other things that, that you can catch. Neither is inherently better or worse than the other. Um, they're just different. And that was the, the only point we intended to make was that they are different things. But the way we phrased it was, let's be honest, horrific. <laughs> we should not have said it this way. Um, and particularly, I mean, like ATP Publishing is a very small press, so I functionally act as editor for it. Um, and when you're editing, you know, your own stuff or stuff you've been intimately involved with for a long time, sometimes you just miss the wider context. And it's on me. I should have caught that. I should have changed it, and I didn't. And that's you know, like, like I'm, I'm deeply embarrassed about it. Uh, if we go to another printing, we will absolutely change it. Um, I'm actually very grateful that they pointed this out um, because the, the the lines themselves on their own are terrible. Um, from the broader context, though, um, some people said like, oh, but you're slut-shaming people by doing this, which I can absolutely understand where this reading comes from. Like, it, it definitely reads like we're saying like, oh, it's your fault if you got HIV AIDS. Um, part of the reason I didn't pick up on this is because I myself am a HIV expert. Um, I studied this for the last, you know, 20 plus years. Um, we actually donate a portion of um, all proceeds for the Outside In series that I edit to um, a HIV organization. Um, actually, my, my cousin died of AIDS in the early 90s. Um, this is this is something that's very connected to me. And that last point is probably more obvious to you than it would be to folks who were joining a Twitter thread. But you did submit a response, and hopefully you're having no more um, negative reaction to the book after that. Yes, I, I mean, I think that, that I mean, I, I was quite happy to submit a response. I also invited um, anyone who wanted to continue the discussion to email me. I mean, because I'm not on Twitter, I was happy to do it. And I had a, actually a very rich discussion with somebody um, who, you know, took issue with some other things and so on. But it was a, a very polite discussion. We had a number of emails exchanged. I'm very, very pleased with it. So, you know, and I also welcome other people if they have further things. I, I'm always very happy to defend my work. And when I say defend, I don't mean dig in the sand and say, like, this can never be changed. I actually think that, you know, had there been an, another editor who would have flagged that before publication, I would have said, oh, yes, of course, you're absolutely right. That could probably be misinterpreted. Let's just take it out. And we would have done that. And because I was too close to it, I didn't do that. And and I, I should have, or we, you know, if we'd had the budget to have a, you know, another editor, we would have done that. Um, but that, that just wasn't available. So after a first question like that, I think any question by definition is going to be easier. Anthony, how did you come to be involved in the Bookworm Project? Uh, total coincidence. Um, I 
was I'd, I'd loved the NAs. I'd really enjoyed them when I was younger. I realised to my horror this is the 30th anniversary of the NAs, which is just terrifying on the ground that the gap between Time Worm Genesis and now is longer than the original series ran. And um, it's funny because we're only 35 years old. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. I, I'm, I'm about 18. Um, um, and I had read most of the NAs. There's a point at which I jumped the shark and just went, no, I can't do this anymore and stopped them. Um, which was, ooh, Stacey, remind me, what was it? Reckless Engineering. No, 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 that's, where we, that's where we met. Oh, oh, original, oh the first original round. Sin. Yes, original I'll, Sin is the point at which I went, I can't do this yes. anymore. If Tobias Vaughan is coming back, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> um, and then I picked up a few EDAs and started reading those and then found the Cloister Library, which Stacey um, had been... Um, Curating. <laughs> Curating, that's the word you're looking for, or our word I'm looking for. Curating, and when, hang on, there's a problem with that. That's not quite right. That doesn't work. What you said is wrong. And thus, a friendship that's lasted 20 years now, Stacey? Yeah, about that. <laughs> yeah, about that was born. I just, I said that, and then, I, and then Stacey said, do you want to write an entry? And I thought, oh, I'm so excited. I'd love to write an entry. So I, like, read a book in about five hours, writing it all up and sent it to her. Um, and, and there we were. And then several years later, we kind of went, let's actually pull up, pull what we're doing together and actually look at these things because there are so many books on the television series, so many books on how it was between 1963 and 1989. But there's so little out there on what happened afterwards, and what happened afterwards was so important, so relevant to what came from 2005 onwards. And isn't it terrifying that that's 16 years? But we wanted to look at that time and look at what that gave to Doctor Who, because I, mean, I think, and I'm sure Stacey agrees with me here, what the NAs did to a lesser extent what the EDAs and what Big Finish did, but certainly what the NAs did have created what we have now. So that leads very nicely into my next question. This is a book that discusses all 61 of the new adventures, all the way from Time Worm Genesis, which came out in June 1991, up through the dying days in April 1997, which is the last new adventure, adventure written under the Doctor Who license, and the only new adventure not to star the Seventh Doctor. Now... Anthony, as you just said, you ejected during Original Sin, which, by the way, I loved to pieces, but uh, if you want three opinions, ask two Doctor Who fans. It would seem to me that for this project, you're reading 61 books in preparation to write a single book. That's got to be a challenging task. How long did it take each of you to reread the entire line start to finish in preparation for Bookworm Volume 1? Four and a half years. Is that right, Stacey? Well, yeah, that, that was in the second round. We'd actually started about 12 years earlier. <laughs> so, yes, it, it was a ridiculously long time. Um, uh, I mean, I think one of the interesting things, certainly, like, because Anthony mentioned the Cloister Library, which is a website, you know, charting continuity, was, like, I think because we'd done the continuity, we weren't as interested in the continuity. And I think, you know, th there's been a couple of other books, you know, like I Who and so on, that, that have talked about that, which are more about tracking 
like, you know, continuity references and things like that. And we were just much more interested in, like, what makes these books tick? Why are they so relevant and so interesting and still many of them hold up today? Um, and, and so I think that's, that's the real genius of it. I mean, like, I think it was, it was really Anthony's breakthrough which said, you know, let's talk about how these influenced the new series that made me go, oh, that's totally brilliant, right? But they did, and let's chart it. And no one's done that because previous books on the, on the NAs came out before the new series, so they couldn't have done that. Um, so that, that for me was really the pivot that said, let's, let's do this. But yes, it was about four years of, of intense reading, um, and, and it was, you know, it was funny reading them sort of, you know, back to back. And I remember, um, you know, I think um, you and I, Anthony, I believe did the survival of sin and bad therapy in reverse because I believe one of us read in one order, one read the other order. And, and of course, they were published out of order. So it was interesting for me reading them in order, like in the order they're intended. And, oh, wow, these really flow. Whereas, of course, we all read it the other way around at the time because it's all that, all that we had. Um, so you've got very different perspectives by kind of doing it in this way. So the entry for each NA is divided up into several subcategories, culminating with one review from each of you. This is similar to the format that Stacy and Graham Burke have used for the Who is the Doctor books. And as you say, one of the subcategories is called Wibbly Wobbly, which is how the new adventures may or may not have influenced the, the new series from 2005 onward. How did the two of you come up with all the various subcategories? Um, I threw them out there, basically. <laughs> I kind of, um, I said to Stacey, um, I think we should do this. And Stacey said, okay, throw a pitch at Arnold. So I sat there one night and wrote, okay, here's where I think the categories go. I will credit Stacey with Wibbly Wobbly. It wasn't what it was called in the first instance. Um, but I just thought, right, okay, what's important here? And interestingly, we had an earlier category, which was um, essentially, I can't remember what it was called, Stacey, where the TARDIS landed. And we, we got through almost halfway through and we went, you know what, that's not important. We weren't charting continuity. We weren't going... We need to know it landed on Peladon in the year 2718 or that. We were charting what was important about what the books were saying, about the wider world, about the Doctor, about the universe that the Doctor inhabited. Um, we kind of went back and erased all those um, because it wasn't important, because we felt that what we wanted to do was write about the effect the books had, not this happened here. And of course, the obvious point being that Peladon, the book Legacy, takes place in 3975, not 2718, because it is a prequel to the Daleks Master Plan. So, And, and this is the point I'm making. <laughs> you know that, and I don't care. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, I mean, one, of, one of the things I always say it, when I'm, I'm getting authors to write for Outside In and stuff like that is, you know, it's like, don't summarize the plot. I was like, you know, you can assume the reader knows the plot pretty well. And if they don't, that's what Wikipedia is for. You can go look that up, right? But I think, why publish in a book in, in the current era, right? What, what is, 
what is the point of it when everything is online? But what is not online is insights and kind of like, you know, like the, the takes that you can bring. Um, and that's stuff you can't just Google and find. So I feel like that's very much what we were trying to bring to the table. I mean, somebody sort of reviewed Bookworm on Gallifrey Basins, something like, you know, like other books will tell you what is in the doctor's pockets. Bookworm tells you why. And that was, that was perfect for me. I was just like, that's exactly what we're going oh. for. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that, Stacey. That's fantastic. I'm really, yes. really shocked with that. We deliberately made a choice that the summary of the book's plot was going to be 45 words and no more. And I, I do remember my plot summary of Bookworm was after many centuries, uh, sorry, of Lungbarrow was after many centuries, the doctor goes home. And Stacey did add stuff to that. <laughs> but to my mind, that was, the, that was the point of that. After many centuries, the Doctor goes home. So how did the two of you divide up the books? How did you determine who was going to be the principal author for each uh, given new adventure? Uh, well, in, in some ways, we had, a, we had it easy in, in that round because, um, because we'd already done some of the Cloister Library we kind of said, well, if the person did a close to library entry, they should not do the major entry for the book. And we thought that'll just be a bit exhausting and, you know, a bit samey. Um, so that, that swapped us over. And then we sort of started to fill in the gaps and said, well, you know, like if you've got a book in an arc, let's do the whole arc, you know, for that person. So there's consistency. And then we just horse traded basically and said, okay, what do, you, what do you want? What do you not want? And then we made a few late changes here and there for, you know, Basically, I think at one point you said, I cannot possibly do Parasite, <laughs> so I'll do it, and, you know, things like that. So I've talked earlier on this episode about how I found The New Adventures, which was via the Time Worm series in November 1991. I discovered the books in their year of publication. That is now, as somebody said a few moments ago, 30 years ago, which is impossible because I'm only 26. Our expectations for Doctor Who fiction and for storytelling in general have changed radically over the last 30 years. Um, thinking about what it's like to revisit these books 25, 30 years after you first read them, what are some elements of the books that have aged really well for the new adventures? And as a counterpoint, what elements of the books could the authors or editors have done differently if the line was launched, say, today, 2021, rather than 1991, which was towards the tail end of the Cold War and in a very different world for so many reasons. Do you want to go, Stacey, or should I? Sure, I'll, I'll go. Actually, I think, <laughs> so I remember Anthony said that there's one key thing that's missing from the new adventures, and it's the USB. <laughs> it's like there's no uniform technology. And so you're kind of like, yeah, that's, that's a real failure of kind of like, you know, this sort of like, you know, futurism that happened that like, you know, you miss the, the idea that things might have been uniform. I mean, obviously you would have cell phones and stuff today. And like, I remember like Scream of the Shelter comes out, you have the doctor using a cell phone and that seemed just really very modern and stuff. And so, you know, you're missing some obvious things. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of nineties clerks, a lot of chaos theory and stuff like that. Um, but one of the things that I think really stands out to me looking back um, is kind of the power of fanfic. Um, and fanfic can be amazing and terrible, depending. <laughs> um, but I think that when you had basically fan writers, so people who cut their teeth on fan fiction, so Paul Cornell was one, Kate Orman was another, a lot of the New Adventures writers had been writing Doctor Who stories for years and years and years and years. And then basically Time and Revelation comes along and it's giant fanfic. Like, it's just so clearly like it's, oh, it's got all the dead companions, it's got multiple doctors, it's got, you know, all kinds of things. And yet I think the power of it is that here are people 
who aren't just dashing off some kind of like random hack work. And, you know, like, a, you know, Time Warner Apocalypse is basically just a target novelization by the editor of that series written for 12 year olds. And it's, it's exactly what you would expect, just, you know, slightly longer. Um, whereas Time of Revelation is somebody who has thought deeply and fundamentally about what Doctor Who actually is and what it could be and the power of it. And he's coming up with ideas that you've just never seen because they've kind of been through it all already, right? It's like, you know, they've probably written a Dalek invasion. They've probably written, a, you know, whatever, a Peladon sequel or whatever. You know, and like, like all those things have come, come in already in their fanfic. They've got them out of their system. And now they're writing about, oh, the TARDIS materializes in the strangest place it has ever materialized in before or since, which is the Doctor's mind. And you're like, oh my God, that is just an incredible idea. And the book is full with things like that. So for me, that, that stuff is just just incredible. And you and I, Stacy, had a very amusing exchange when I was setting up this recording. I said we were talking about the four Time Worm books for this episode, and I said three of the four are great. And you wrote back, no, two of the four are great. And we had a very vigorous debate after that. I will not name names as to which book we disagreed upon. But my long-held belief on Apocalypse, and you said something almost identical in your part of the Apocalypse entry, is that the best part of the book is the quote from the novelization of Legopolis, which is not even Nigel Robinson's original work. But I am still... Anytime I read the New Adventures, especially the Time Worm books, I am just transported back to where I was in 1991 when I discovered the first three. Revelation did not really penetrate the U.S. market. I didn't get it until 1994, so I read it a little bit later. But it's hard for me to read the books objectively because where I was when I read them, having just turned 18, and what role they played in my fandom. So, Anthony, I want to give you the last word here. You were the principal author for the Time Worm entry. Looking back now, 30 years later, uh, which of the books would you say has aged remarkably well? Uh, which book might not necessarily get commissioned today? I have soft spots for all four of these books, even, even Genesis and even Apocalypse. I have reasons for thinking they're good. And those are apologetic reasons sometimes. Those are reasons of... They didn't know what they were doing, but look at an unearthly child. That's not Doctor Who that we knew from, say, I don't know, Dalek Invasion of Earth onwards. It was, it was creating a new thing. It was creating something that we didn't understand, and they were going to be false step. But then Terence Dix came along and wrote Exodus. And you just go, oh, dear God. This is utterly brilliant. I mean, there are flaws in Exodus. I, will, I remain, and it's in Bookworm, and I'm proud of it. Um, you cannot sit there and go, oh, the Nazis did what the Nazis did because of alien intervention. No, the Nazis did what the Nazis did because that's what they did, and there is no excusing that. Um, Nigel Robinson, there were... There were problems with Time of Apocalypse, but he didn't know what he was doing either. And then Paul Cornell came along and said it to everyone, here's how it could be done. But this was experimental. You've got to look, to my mind, at the first four NAs as you look at An Unearthly Child, The Daleks, Edge Destruction, Marco Polo. They were experimenting. They didn't know what they were doing. They were playing in a whole new field and they were trying to put together everything in the past and 
everything they thought the future might bring. And I think there are faults with all four books. Uh, Stacy is much, much, much keener, I think, on Taiwan Revelation than I am. And he may have a moment to say that Taiwan Revelation. I have huge problems with the fact that Cornell basically retroactively writes the whole of the Seventh Doctor's history on it. Um, but yet it's brilliant. But they were playing in a new sandpit, one that had been created by um, Cartmel, and one which we didn't know how it was going to work. And, you know, let's, let's look at another consideration. Imagine if Doctor Who had finished with Trial of a Time Lord and the NAs were written with Colin Baker's Doctor... It's just unthinkable. They came at the right time. They came in the right place. But those first four books, and indeed the next ten, I would argue, were trying to work out what the NAs were doing. And I'm going to agree with Stacey completely. Legacy then screwed up what they were doing. But they got things wrong. But so did Doctor Who. So did the programme. And they got things right. And the things they got right are the, pe the things that people went, you know what, this is what the NAs are. Let's go for it and do it. And they did. And I think the famous story about Nigel Robinson is after he submitted his book, he then read the manuscript for Revelation and went, oh, so that's what I was supposed to do. And then he comes back three years later and he writes Birthright, which is a completely different tone, a completely different style, much more in line with the best of the Nigel Robinson novelizations. And even the author of Revelation then came out and wrote Love and War, which is much more coherent and actually tells a story front to back, which Revelation wasn't necessarily interested in doing. So if you go back and look at the next work from some of those writers, they learn from their mistakes, so they wrote much more definitive new adventures. Which is exactly what the writers in Doctor Who in 1963 and 1964 and 1965 did. There is no Stacy, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us here today. It was a real pleasure, and I will hopefully speak to you again when I come back and start discussing some of the later new adventures in the series. <laughs> thank you once again. Thanks so much for having us. My thanks to Anthony and Stacy. The 1991 NAs concluded with Apocalypse and Revelation. Right now is a reading from Revelation, kindly recorded for us by Brendan from Flight Through Entirety, and Jody Into Terror, and the Bodenfinger podcast. God, Doctor, muttered Ace to the sky. Why did you have to get so screwed up? This nightmare just went on and on. Death might have been welcome compared to the endless coils of this creature. She turned to it once more. What if I free this bloke? You will not, smiled the time worm. Boy, Chad Boyle stepped from behind the tree. Oh yeah, thought Ace. He'd fallen too, hadn't he? Carrying the time worm in his head. Great. The little boy was grinning as always. He was covered in spiked armour, shiny and pristine, almost a humanoid approximation of the time worm's snake form. He carried a vast axe, its edge razor sharp. Hello again, Dotty, he laughed. Isn't this a great game? Won't it ever stop? There was a strange edge of hysteria to his voice. 
as if that was a question he'd been asking himself. Ace raised her sword. In doing so, she felt that awful draining of age and experience again, her future flooding away. With every year that flew off her, she wanted to lunge at Boyle, to spill his blood. Go on, the bully chided. Use your sword, try and take my life. The years were flying away, and Ace knew that this must be the wrong thing to do, that killing Boyle here would mean the Time Worm would win and wipe her from history. But it was so hard. It was what the cheetah people would do, what a soldier would do, what the doctor... No. She lowered her sword and felt the power and grace of experience return to her. You're a little boy, she said to Boyle, and you don't know any better. But I do. Ace lifted the sword and broke it over her knee, throwing it aside in pieces. Then she advanced on Boyle. The child backed away, stammering, That's not what you're supposed to do. You're not playing the game. You're not obeying the rules. Ace quietly took the axe from the scared boy and pulled the helmet from his shoulders. No, I'm not. Life isn't about games. She reached the tree and glared at the snake. The time worm was looking around as if trying to marshal non-existent forces. Ace raised her axe to cut down the tree's prisoner. Please, don't. cried the time worm desperately. I want to live too. He doesn't want to die. Please. Perhaps, only a year ago, Ace would have said something pithy and grinned at the destruction of an enemy that had put her through so much torment. Now, she only nodded. That's something else the doctor got wrong. Something you'll have to take up with him. She carefully undid the binding that held the blonde man to the tree. He fell into her arms, his eyes wet with tears of relief. Hello, he whispered up at Ace. I'm the doctor, or rather I was, a long time ago. He attempted to stand, but found that he couldn't. Ace supported him. I wanted a place to play cricket, you see. A sunny glade a pot of tea. But he wouldn't let me. We were at war, he said. The old doctor's voice was full of injured innocence. And we were all needed. The other doctors all cooperated to some extent, but I... I... I objected. He stared at the landscape all around, as if seeing it for the first time. That's what I call being brave, muttered Ace. Perhaps... It wasn't his fault he imprisoned me. He he couldn't help it. Now, the fifth doctor's voice hardened, there's something I have to do. Help me to the flower. The time worm and Boyle looked on in terror as Ace put the young doctor's arm over her shoulder and stumbled with him towards the bloom. Above, the storm was gathering strength. My deepest thanks to Brendan for that amazing reading. Speaking of a revelation, last month I also had the chance to sit with Jonathan Blum, who's written several Doctor Who novels over the years. Any writer has an origin story. 
and we're about to hear John's. My next guest is Jonathan Blum, who to a certain age of Doctor Who novel readers certainly needs no introduction. But in 1991, when Time Worm Genesis and the other three Time Worm books came out, John was, like me, just a man living in the United States, and he discovered the books at about the same time that I did. The argument can be made there is nobody, apart from anyone who wrote a book for the series, there is nobody whose life was more influenced by the new adventures than John. John, say hello to our listeners here at Trap One. Hello to his listeners. It's an absolute pleasure to actually find myself in this situation because of the sheer surrealism of it. I mean, just the very fact that after 30 years that we could still be discussing these books and that I could be discussing this from where I am now in Australia, it, it still blows my mind. And for the benefit of uh, those of our listeners who might not be up to date, uh, with whom are you residing in Australia? Okay. Well, after, the, after um, uh, quite a few years of, in, in the U.S., uh, we're going, going from, from run-of-the-mill fanboy reading books in the, in, the, in, in, in the back of my dorm room at the time there, I managed to fall in love with a new adventures author. Much to my astonishment, I am now currently living in Sydney, Australia, with my wife of more than 20 years, Kate Orman. And I was at your wedding, which I believe was uh, late 1998, so that would be, my goodness, January my 22nd actually. wedding anniversary. Yeah, it was January 98, so you've already screwed that up there. Oh, but, okay, yeah. 23 years then, mazel tov. Yeah, and it's some... It's okay, I barely remember this. We tend to count our anniversaries from when we first actually met in person at a Doctor Who convention. So, it, so it's, um, as far as I'm concerned, Kate and I have been together for over 25 years now. Thank you, Visions 1995. And on the flip side, I remember when you celebrated your 25th birthday, so it's kind of disturbing that time has caught up with each of us. That It still floors me that was more than half my life ago, and yet where I am now and what I am doing now can still be traced directly back to the new adventures. So what I'd like to do, John, is I'm going to surprise you with a little bit of the This Is Your Life, and I've gone back into the uh, the Wayback Machine, for oh uh, American viewers who grew up on Rocky and Bullwinkle, and I've discovered a gem from the archives. Picture that in your best John Pertwee accent. Oh my God! And I've discovered I've discovered from Rec Arts Doctor Who your very first review of the very first two new adventures from September twenty fifth, nineteen ninety one. Uh oh boy! <laughs> so, by frame of reference, I discovered the first two books um, in Thanksgiving, which is late November, nineteen ninety one, and I read the first two books. Uh, that rekindled my Doctor Who fandom, which had been kind of at a low ebb when I started college and was trying to jettison this embarrassing fandom that I figured nobody else at my university would have heard of. <laughs> yeah. And I discovered I had a friend who was reading the new adventures, so I went out and got them myself. And the next logical step was to discover the internet. So I joined Rec Arts Doctor Who in April 1992, I want to say. And you, of course, had already been there and had carved out a reputation as one of the uh, thought leaders of the group. So I would not have seen your post originally, but I have discovered it now thanks to uh, extensive use of the Google Archives. Oh, and my God. You have I... a review of Genesis by John Peel, who we've already heard from earlier in the podcast. And here is your review of Time Worm Exodus, which I'm going to read out to you. 
Uh, before we go into either of this, I just want to say that I have absolutely no memory of this review, so I am going to be, I am going to be absolutely shocked to find out what it was that I was saying back then. <laughs> it is from uh, let's see, June nineteen ninety one is nearly thirty years ago, which is uh, well more than half of our lives ago. So I'm, yeah. I do not hold you responsible for any of the opinions that you expressed, but. This is it's, what you it's fascinating, though, time. that you just say that if this is from June 91, this means I would have gotten those first two books instantly, pretty much the moment they came out. And well, it's, it's September, September 25th. You would have gotten them probably about three months after their release date. Yeah, I mean, they, re- they were releasing them once every two months there, so it would have been the June one for, uh, for, for Genesis and, I guess, August for Exodus. I would have read that then in my first month or so at university. When I had, uh, similarly, I was um, very... I was still involved with the Doctor Who fandom at the time, but I had no connections in the university area with that. And it's only many years after those t- that time at uni that I discovered just how many of my friends from uni at the time were Doctor Who fans as well, but weren't talking about it. I mean, I'm still having fan discussions once in a while with some of the folks that I knew back then. <laughs> that is pretty impressive that these books are still inspiring conversation 30 years later. So... What I want to do is I'm going to read out the Exodus review, and then I will get your reaction, and then uh, we'll move on to talk about a later book in the same series, which has had a much more, I think, direct influence on your life. Mm, yes. So this is what you wrote about Exodus. This is the 25th of September, 1991. Exodus. What's the fuss about? For the record, light years. Uh, for the record, Sorry? I want to point out I am 18 years old at the time. <laughs> No, wait, 19 years old, correction. Sorry, it has been a long time, hasn't it? <laughs> You've forgotten our age. <laughs> Again, what's the fuss about? This is definitely light years beyond the normal Terrence Dix novels while you wait product, but neither is it the masterpiece people have been saying. The Doctor and Ace are really well done and totally believable, but much of the story is kind of cliched. A few great twists, though. The one that really bugs me, though, is the main Nazi villain who is exactly the kind of dummy that John Peel avoids, he pretty much flat out says, I might as well show you around my HQ and cue you in on all my plans because I'm going to kill you soon anyways. Aside from the shock of who this villain is, that part of the plot is kind of lame. But no, no matter how many nits I pick, one thing is still true. I loved, underscore, reading this book. And that was you 30 years ago. <laughs> Oh my god, I, I love that even then I was unafraid to bag out Terrence Dix. <laughs> that was actually one of the, my learning experiences as I went from being a, a fan to a pro writer. Uh, it was specifically that I was still reviewing books um, as my own book was about to come out, and I got given the quiet word from a, from a fellow author, not one of the usual New Adventures names, I hasten to add, that for a young, just-published author to be... Uh, Randomly slagging off far more experienced authors of like like Terence Dix in that in that review made you look like a bit of an idiot. So I that was the beginning of my general policy now of of avoiding slagging off pe- people who in whose books disappointed me in some way or another, and again trying to keep focused on on the positive, which has become sort of a trademark for me. And I think in many ways it helped me become a, a much a much less annoying fan. I think if I try to focus on uh, what what people are doing right in these cases. I mean, you and I being almost in the same position, I'll tell you, when I first saw that Terrence Dix had written A New Adventure, and this would have been November 91, 
my first reaction was, oh, no, not him. It's going to be a book for babies. Because at that point, I was immature enough to think that I had outgrown the novelizations, and I was immature enough to think that Terrence Dix was a hack, was a hack writer. It takes much later, and here I am now, <coughs> deep into my mid-40s, or as my kid cheerfully points out, my late 40s. <laughs> there is really no better prose stylist in all the novelizations of Terrence Dix in terms of his sentence structure, his word choice, his descriptive powers, even for a 95-page book. He packs in so much value-added material, and then later on, when you had some of the old Hartnell-era writers come back and write, you know, the Space Museum or Galaxy 4, those guys could barely put a sentence together. John Lucarotti was the king of run-on sentences, and the massacre is almost unreadable because each sentence runs on to three-quarters of a page. It makes you realize how amazing Terrence Dix was, and we all thought it was simplistic and childish, but it turns out he was almost the expert of the lot. And Exodus has, I think, really stood the test of time 30 years later. It's just a remarkably good, well-plotted work, even though it's three times as long as his, novel, his novelization of The Invisible Enemy. Well, that's the thing, is that, I mean... Even looking back at this, I, I found that, I mean, what I've found over the years is that Terrence Dix, he can, his strength is that he can do really, he can do really sharp, straightforward stuff without even trying. The, uh, the bad thing is that a fair chunk of time, he isn't really trying. And um, uh, I can, I think that there are all these cases where I can see um, both what you're saying, the, the clarity, and what I really appreciate at the moment is the conciseness of a lot of his stuff there. As someone whose current manuscript is vastly over length, I just admire his ability to pack all this stuff into just a, a matter of a, a few pages per episode in some of these cases. And having been reading a fair bit of the Missing Adventures over the last six months, as I've been doing my pilgrimage to the classic series... As a stress test, try and picture how any one of those writers describes the TARDIS materialization sound, and none of them are ever as good as wheezing and groaning, because some of the writers will do, you know, seven sentences to describe the TARDIS materializing, and Terrence just, Terrence just nailed it in those two words, which is a gift. Well, that, that's the challenge, though, that a lot of the, uh, the book writers have had to face, which, I mean, the people working on the show, or even in the early novelizations didn't really run into. I mean, one of the things I was quite aware of by the, by the time that Kate was working on a, on her subsequent NAs is how do you do something brilliant for the fifth time? Whereas Terrence's solution was to do was to do the one brilliant thing every time, the same thing, <laughs> which works. And again, it really drives home that the idea that what we have with with the Terrence Dix the Terrence Dix line of novelizations there is not is not individual works necessarily, that are brilliant, like, say, as you mentioned, The Invisible Enemy, but when you take them as a whole, as a single unit, even though they, the repetition becomes part of the, the definition of the structure, and it becomes not so much a single, not, not so much, not so much a, a collection of single stories as one overall work, and that overall work is what is engraved on our brains since childhood. And what that leads me to is the final sentence from this post of yours from nearly 30 years ago. This was your closing argument, and this is the very first few NAs that you read. You finish, in short, Genesis is decent, and Exodus is a bit more than decent, but they've still got room to grow. Now, that, of course, is incredible because as the line grows, you become a part of it. 
and you ended up being very influential in the next successful line of books, The Eighth Doctor Adventures. So I want to ask, and this is, of course, a leading question because I already know what your answer is going to be. What is the book for you after Exodus, which showed you that the NAs had grown up and had carved out their own voice and became the books that would so directly influence your life? Okay, this is, the, this is where it begins, really, for me. I mean, first of all, you asked me what was the book that, that did the most influence, and I'm tempted to just throw you off the track and say that with the left hand, The Hummingbird, which I like so much I married the author. But, <laughs> but what it really comes down to is that if there's a moment in my life changed, it would be in, I believe, uh, February of 1992, when I was on a trip to the UK with a college class uh, for a winter session course, and I picked up Time Worm Revelation. That was the moment where, it's weird to think this is literally, this is still, this is barely six months past that those first couple of books coming out there. And um, uh, in that time, we had probably three successive revolutions going on in terms of Doctor Who storytelling. The first was Genesis, and I want to give props to, to uh, John Peel for this, which is that he showed that you could actually tell a Doctor Who story that was broader and deeper than the small screen. That you could that you could um, uh, that you could create a landscape that would just go beyond any of the restrictions that that TV Doctor Who stories had managed. By which I mean not matters of sex and violence and adult content in that sense, but simply being able to tell stories that were not confined to a limited number of sets that you could make on a budget of merely a hundred thousand pounds or whatever it was at that point there. That you could that you could expand the the, the scale of imagination. In the stories like Genesis, which is that is I think a, a real moment of transition, which isn't really noted, you get that revolution, which is that you can do Doctor Who on this larger, deeper scale. Then you get Exodus, which tells you, which which is the one that tells you that you can do Doctor Who on this larger, deeper scale, and it can be really rather good. And then about six months after that, you get Time Worm Revelation. And you find out that you can do Doctor Who on this broader, deeper, larger scale, and it can be poetry. And that's the moment that I remember was having picked up this book, reading it on a on a bus while I was waiting, and just having my eyes begin to bulge out. And then that night being stuck in my hotel room with my roommate and actually hiding in the bathroom while my while my friend was trying to go to sleep, just so I could finish reading this book. I was wow. astonished, and I'm still looking back on it even now. I still keep finding the the sheer gratuitous poetry of this book, the playfulness, the the ideas, the energy that are packed into almost every sentence that I am. So let me ask you some leading questions then. So Genesis, as you say, is this sprawling <coughs> epic which takes place all across Mesopotamia. And there are scenes in outer space, and there are cameos from two other doctors. Exodus is an alternate universe story. It goes back and forth in time, tells the entire story of Nazi Germany from sorry beginning to even sorrier ending. And Apocalypse, um, which is probably the least of the first four books, at least goes to the end of time and tells a story deep, deep, deep into the future with more monsters than you could ever realize in PC6 with David Maloney as your director. So those are very expansive books. Revelation takes place essentially inside of a church 
and inside of one of the characters' brains. So, in one sense, it's playing with a smaller palette than the other books, but that's a little misleading, isn't it? That, that's a bit like saying that the Mind Robber was a season cheapy or something like that, though, because it is while it's using a limited number of uh, sets, as it were, what it has is prose. And this is the fact that you can do Doctor Who not just as a recounting of events, of external action there, but being inside the thought processes of people who are who have have insight, who have um, who have awareness and thought and thoughts that go beyond that they go well beyond what you would have on a screen. And the fact that you could have an interiority in this case absolutely transformed my sense of what you could do in a Doctor Who story. Um, something I'm still trying to get back to in the stuff I'm working on now here is that sense there of that these these characters who would appear to be, in some cases, like the, the supporting cast of Revelation, who would, who would appear to be fairly simple and straightforward, they all still have inner lives and inner monologues in a way that you couldn't even imagine, even from the novelizations before, the, the level of... Um, sorry, I'm groping for the word here. But the but the uh, the sense of the sense of people with 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 real hopes and dreams from our world and from outside our world, and in the case of Ace, someone who's who's transitioning between you know, be, between an earth, and familiar earthly existence and his much larger one, and I really think that in those moments there with the characters um, uh, showing their inner lives, their drives, and what 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 is making them grow up in the case of Ace, we have the seed for pretty much the I. I hate to to get grandiose this, but it really just seems to me like the seeds of all future Doctor Who are in that book. So let's talk about Ace then, because Ace, of course, the only reason that Ace is the anchor of the new adventures is because she just happened to be the last companion standing when the series was finally canceled. Had the series ended three years earlier, the NAs might well have featured 61 books starring Mel, which might not offer the same universe of storytelling options. So the NAs had this house style, this house rule, where you don't narrate scenes from the Doctor's point of view. You look at the Doctor from a remove. So the companion is there as the audience identification figure. So the very first book, Genesis, opens with Ace having amnesia, and she has to learn about the Doctor and the TARDIS all over again. And that's our entry into the books. And then Exodus plays a little bit more with the fondness between the Doctor and Ace, sort of as a professor-student team. What does, what does Revelation do for Ace that none of the other books before had done, and what does that mean for storytelling for the next 58 new adventures that came after that? That's an interesting question. I think what really comes down to it is that Ace, Ace on screen, again, I was talking about the, the exterior versus the interior, and, and Ace on screen in the first few books is defined by her actions, by her, her tendency to... Her tendency to lash out um, in many cases, uh, but that's in, in terms of in terms of actually going out and bashing Daleks, or in terms of her explosive sense of breaking down in a story like Fenric. Here, what really defines Ace, I think, is that struck with me was that sense of someone someone transitioning from childhood to to being uh, on the verge of being a grown up. And it sense that this is a, this is someone who is, who has come from a very clearly defined and vividly drawn, even just in the little glimpses we get here, uh, grounded London childhood and teenage years there, and the, the struggles that she has faced there, 
so, so she has a she has a history, not just a backstory, but a history, which defines where she was, where she is, and points towards where she could go from here. And to me, what the 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 quote that doesn't get enough um uh, that doesn't get enough praise when people look at Revelation was just a was just a, a throwaway line of Paul's, which is well, well, that was the whole point of growing up, wasn't it? To stop dreaming and start doing. And reading that line is one of those little moments where something opens up in, inside your head and just blossoms for me because that was the, the sort of that was what I was on the cusp of doing as I was getting into college there that I was going from someone who had been just sort of thinking about Doctor Who who had been involved with fan clubs and discussing this stuff and just l loving this whole universe of storytelling there but I think somewhere around there is the point where I start trying to actually properly write and to make a Doctor Who fan film and to reach out to other fans to work collaboratively on this and to do projects that we we had never imagined we could do before that moment there. This is a bit off the topic so, of what Ace brought, but, it, but, it's a, but I see what, what it is is there I can see the mirroring of the growth that fans of, all, of that age at that time were going through ourselves as we were transitioning from just watching the, the, the program as children or adolescents to actually actually trying to go out there and do something of our own. And the author of Revelation was the first of the four writers who was not a professional. The previous three had all done several novelizations, I think 60 of a case of Terrence, and then certainly about five others between the other two. Paul was the first writer who was a fan fiction writer who was getting his first novel. So he was putting all of his theories about Doctor Who to the test in the way that an experienced novelization writer might not do because they're more focused on telling a story, keeping the action moving. It's the, there's a real sense that I think that Paul has this, has, has this chance to write a Doctor Who book, and it may be the only chance he ever gets in his life. And he is going to take every idea he has in his head, and there are a lot flying around in his head at this point. He'd been coming out of a fan fiction scene with the likes of uh, Keith Topping, uh, who had really picked up on this, the idea of... Uh, it's very much the, the Doctor Who equivalent of uh, the sort of new wave of science fiction from the late 60s, in that it's, it's, it's very expressionistic. There's, there's this incredible energy of, that is coming in in terms of just um, look, looking beyond the, the, the standard form form. Of, forms of the way things are being done and just and just suddenly taking okay this is my chance i'm going to i'm going to pour everything into it and the thing that makes paul cornelli genius who's um who's who's socks i'm not worthy to chew even now <laughs> is that not only was he able to pour everything into his first book he was able to do it again and he still is i mean it's fascinating looking at the at the other end of the the cornell output of doctor who which is the recent novelization of uh, Twice Upon a Time. Again, this real sense of things going full circle. He gets a chance to actually go back and do a novelization. And the poetry in that book is not nearly as densely packed or throw everything at the wall as Revelation. But you can still see him choosing his motifs and his images and just individual phrases from the first sentence of the book to the last. And there is a, there is a discipline and a poetry to this, which has, is what I think the NA has brought to Doctor Who in in prose, this awareness of the prose and what you could do with it, not just in this sort of very simple, straightforward, precise way that, as you're saying, Terence could do, but in a more elaborate, uh, 
richer subtextual way or deep textual way that can that can bring the TV episodes to life in a whole new way. The novelization of um, uh, Twice Upon a Time I found so much richer than the TV episode, and the dif- the distance between those two is really the legacy, the new adventures right there. And many of the new adventure writers ended up going on to write for the TV series. So you flash forward to yeah. the spring of 2005, and there's the author of Time Worm Revelation writing Father's Day, which is the most emotionally charged episode of season one, arguably. Oh, it's and the only Doctor Who story much, ever to make my dad cry. So I'm full props to Paul for that. How much of an influence does Time Worm Revelation have on Father's Day, because they are both set in a church, and they both delve deeply into the psyche of their uh, female lead. Well, I think, um, uh, it, it, of course, Russell specifically told Paul when he hired him, right, I want you to write in your new adventure's voice for this. So it's not a surprise that, it, that there's a similarity there. But I think what it really comes down to is that what, what you have in, by the time of Father's Day is that is that you have not just the the outpouring of ideas and emotion that that Paul brought to the book. You know, I mean, that that heart is the same. But what there is also at that point is a real sense of discipline. I mean, I I looked back recently on Father's Day and I was just impressed at how how simple and how tight it is. So in some ways, he has learned the. Um, you, we were just talking about the, the tightness of Terence Dix. It's the combination of that and the incredible tightness of Russell Davies. As it were, it's just this this sense that there is that he has managed to pare it down so you can squeeze all this stuff into the tiny tiny space of a forty five minute TV episode, and yet still evoke all that stuff, which still astonishes me. I wish that I could write something that uh, write something that compact. Of course, I'm saying that right at this moment because my manuscript for the for the book that I'm working on right now is currently about 20,000 words over length and I need to do a round of cutting right now. <laughs> uh, so, wrapping up Revelation, <laughs> one of the things that struck me most about Revelation, and I read it after you, I wasn't able to get a copy until 1994, so I had already read Love and War and I had already read No Future by the time I finally got to Revelation. What struck me the most was that he turns each of the past doctors into symbols. So the first doctor, the third doctor, the fourth and fifth doctors show up in the book, but as almost archetypal versions of themselves. And what does that mean for the Doctor Who format? When you're taking the idea of the past doctors and turning them into symbols, who each have a specific role to play in the seventh doctor's mind. It's it's interesting because what it does is it takes the um, uh, it takes what we had seen in previous Doctor Who. There, where it was just the sense that there was this this list of doctors. Really, there's that there's a straight line, fairly linear sense of of how the Doctor had changed over his life. What I think Revelation reinvents here, I mean, is the idea that this is not just the Doctor's past. This is a part of who he is and still will be. And again, this is something that is continues to be echoed in the new show with the likes of um, uh, of um, uh, Day of the Doctor, where, which is the closest you would get to that, where you have the sense that each of these doctors is a role or fraction of a, a role that, that this doctor has played and still has within him. In that sense, we've got the three parts arguing there with the man who regrets and the man who forgets. Uh, the, 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 the different aspects of this one person are all present in 
this moment here. That it's not um, uh, it's not just a sense that that the doctor will call back to a bit of his past, but that he has all these different sides within him. Again, the interiority. This is a character who, even though we couldn't see things from his point of view to keep him mysterious, which was literally the virgin house style mentioned in the documents there, the idea that he is this this complex, multifaceted person who does not think in a straight line, and who is, in many ways, I mean, the re revelation really draws out the conflicts within the Doctor, which are, when you look back at it, surprisingly absent from the old show. The Doctor, at any point there, in a given story, always seems to know what he's doing and is doing what he wants to. We get little hints of him having doubts, um, of, of, for example, at the end of um, uh, at the end of um, Remembrance of the Daleks, which is also a candidate for the beginning of this the revolution, which the NAs were, were just a further flowering up. So that book of, Revel of, of Remembrance of the Daleks is just uh, is another astonishing proto-new adventure right there. But he, he, in that case, you, you get you get brief glimpses of his doubt about whether he was doing the right thing there. But by by revelation, we have a sense that he has not just guilt but ongoing conflicts about what he is doing and is. And the doctor questioning himself, and in some cases having to argue with himself or or face himself. Again, you can you can now suddenly you can start getting entire stories out of what the doctor what the doctor means and how the doctor reacts to the doctor. Again, there's a thread straight through from that into Russell Davies and Stephen Moffat, where Russell's keynote was always what makes the Time Lord tick. And Stephen again just just draws on this so much and has the and, and has the doctor um, questioning himself and and exploring his own what what it means to be him, and again it all just comes straight from this one moment and that for me that that night in early nineteen ninety two was just you can you it it really does divide Doctor Who into before Revelation and after Revelation. Anyway, thank you. It has been an absolute pleasure to go down memory lane with you on this, Jason. I miss you, and I hope that at some point we will actually get to catch up face to face again. I'm sure that will happen now that the world is waking up from coronavirus and I'm fully vaccinated. And John will talk to you again on a future recording. Thanks okay. so much for joining us. Be seeing you. Thank you, John. Next, I'd like to present a panel discussion on the 1991 books. One with the commentator new to Trap One, and one with a voice that may seem a little familiar to listeners of the pod. We are rejoined now for a panel discussion by two very distinguished guest panelists. We were originally supposed to have three. We are joined now by Graham Burke, who is the author or co-author of several Doctor Who reference books over the years, who is host of the Reality Bomb podcast, which I strongly suggest you check out if you are not a subscriber already. And most importantly, in terms of the new adventures, Graham <clears throat> once played a living Auton spatula in one of the 1996 novels. <laughs> okay, welcome to Trap One. Thank you. It's great to be here, finally. We were supposed to be joined this morning by Joe Ford, also known as Doc Oho. Doc Oho on Twitter has probably written more review words about Doctor Who fiction than anybody else I know in the last 20 years. He is co-host of the Hamster with a Blunt Penknife commentary podcast, and also the co-host of The Nymon Be Praised, or as he and Jack call it, The Nymon Be Praised! Unfortunately, Joe has been a last-minute scratch due to work obligations. He will be joining us on a separate track a little bit later in the program. And our third 
co-panelist this morning is a young man named Mark. Um, Mark, who are you? Uh, so I'm Mark McManus. I'm I'm the host of the Chat One podcast. You mean this podcast? So, yeah, yeah. It's uh, I don't know what's happened. <laughs> oh, bless your heart. Well, we're very happy to have you. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> so, uh, Mark, thank you very much for letting me hijack the program once again for my retrospective on the new adventures. And what I'd like to talk about with the you two fellows today is the original set of new adventures from 1991. I discovered these books pretty contemporaneous to when they came out. I found my first two, which was Genesis and Exodus, during Thanksgiving break 1991. That's late November. And I read the two books with lightning speed. I loved them both in different ways. What's curious, though, is that neither one really sticks to what would eventually become the New Adventures formula. So, in retrospect, they are both a little bit at odds with where the rest of the line was going. Since I was reading the books in real time between 1991 and 1997, that didn't become apparent to me until many years later when I went back for rereads. And I think if the editors had known what the new adventures could be, these two books might have been repurposed slightly in the edit. I still am quite fond of uh, both of them. And being in the United States, we were in kind of a desert for the NAs. So I was able to get Apocalypse around Christmas break 1991. I never... And still to this day, have never seen Time Warm Revelation on any bookshelf anywhere. I got my copy a few years later from a UK-based fan, and I, by the time I read it, I'd already been spoiled of all of its imagery and plot twists on Rekart's Doctor Who in the early 90s. But my experience was enjoying the NAs as they came out, kind of in real time. And Graham, my recollection, because I first met you on Rekart's in the early 90s, my recollection is that your NA experience is rather similar? Yes and no. Um, I, I actually came to the New Adventures a lot later. Uh, I, came, I came in uh, around 92. Uh, I had read the excerpt from Genesis in Doctor Who magazine, uh, and I was just kind of like, eh, this, isn't, this isn't, probably isn't my thing. Um, I dimly remember looking at Apocalypse in the bookstore, um, and probably, probably Time's Crucible, and, but I didn't really get into the new adventures until, until, until August of 92 when I went to Britain for the very first time in my life, and I went to the Who Shop in East Ham, which is the sort of, at the time, was the only sort of store that, you know, specifically dealt in Doctor Who things. And uh, which was really novel, given that the show, television show had been off the air for about three years. And I went, and uh, it was the first time I'd ever like laid eyes on a Doctor Who fan um, who <laughs> was the same age as me. Um, <laughs> I was about twenty-two, and uh, I proceeded to stay in that. I arrived at that store at three, and I think I left at six. And we just talked about Doctor Who the entire time. And uh, during that time, the clerk whose name I've now forgotten, uh, talked to me about the new adventures. And I said, I, you know, I've, I've taken a couple of looks and it's not really for me. So you really should try the newest one. It's called Nightshade. And I, I think you're going to, I think you'd really, really like it. 
So I said, well, maybe, but I, I, I left the, I left the store buying the uh, Remembrance of the Daleks novelization and a Sylvester McCoy sweater. Uh, I didn't actually buy Nightshade until a couple of days later. I was in Oxford, and I was in a Waterstones bookstore, and I saw it on the shelf, and I remember the conversation, and so I, I, I bought it, and then didn't read it for another three days until I was stuck waiting for a train in Milton Keynes, and uh, and that is when I read it, and I went, oh my god, this is so amazing. So that's kind of how I, my origin story with The New Adventures, and so I ended up like, you know, rather like Doctor Who itself, the television show, I, I watched a lot of it, out, I read a lot of it out of sequence, uh, so I didn't come to the Time Worm cycle until much later. I seem to recall it was, uh, I, I was, it was probably May or June 93, I remember I bought it and transit and something else around around that same time. Not all at the same time, but I remember there was a Sunday afternoon. I came back from a friend's uh, wedding rehearsal, which was a hellish experience, which is another story. And uh, and I had stopped off at uh, a bookstore we had in Toronto called the World's Biggest Bookstore, and I bought Time War Exodus and. I spent the rest of the evening and, af and uh, the rest of the afternoon and evening reading that book and nonstop because it was just so great. And uh, Revelation, I had similar experiences with, and I did go back to Genesis and Apocalypse um, at various points. But yeah, most of the early ones I, I read very much out of sequence. It was similar for me. The Cat's Cradle books, which was the second uh, NA cycle, three books that came out in the first half of 1992. Witchmark is the only one that I was able to find in a bookstore, and reading it gave me sort of a crisis of faith because it was, whatever my cup of tea is, it was completely the opposite. And then it was a few more months after that before I found Love and War, which really was the book that opened up the, the new adventures for me. And after that, I was fortunately able to never miss a volume. Funny that you mentioned, Who Shop, of course, is still in business. I was there in 2018. Yeah. That's where I bought my... Uh, Target-style City of Death novelization, which I then read in Paris the very next day. And I've been to World's Biggest Bookstore, but I don't think I bought any Doctor Who fiction while I was there. That would have been much later in the 1990s, during the glory days of the EDAs and the PDAs. It was one of the only places you could actually get EDAs and PDAs, actually. And Mark, for you, you come from a slightly different generation of fandom than Graham and myself. In the early 1990s, did the New Adventures have any blip on your radar, or did you come in uh, much, much later, like the, several of today's fans on the various Facebook collector groups? No, I bought them and read them as they came out. Um, I was far too young to read them, I think. Um, I think if, um, if, if my mom had realized what the, the stuff I was reading, she, she probably wouldn't have been very happy. Um, so, yeah, I was 11, 12 years old. Um, I only started watching Doctor Who with the with series season twenty five, so um, I was quite quite new to the series anyway. I'd ploughed through all the Target novelizations I could get my hands on from libraries and and bookshops. So yeah, I was I was ready for and hungry for more Doctor Who. And then these new ones started appearing on the shelves of the bookshops. Uh, so yeah, I just started reading them. Um, I got the first three Time Worm ones, but Revelation was difficult to get hold of for some reason. It was quite a bit later, and I'd read, definitely read a few more of the new adventures. And then I think we're on holiday somewhere in, in, the, in the UK, and I found Time Worm Revelation in a WH Smith's. 
And I was like, oh, great. So, um, yeah, I grabbed that one and, and read it much later. But it's the one probably as probably Exodus, uh, Nightshade, Love and War, like ones we've mentioned there. But Revelation is probably the one that stayed with me. Um, the most, just the imagery and the ideas were, were really powerful. Probably the one I've revisited the most as well. And I, as I've stated elsewhere during this program, my intention is to go back and cover the rest of the NAs in three recordings later on over the next year, covering two of the final six years of the Doctor Who version of the NAs over each of those programs. So for today, confining ourselves to 1991... It's interesting kind of as a Rorschach test because as I went into this recording, my remembrance of the books was that there were three great ones and one fairly weak one. And when I started telling this to various contributors to this episode, a lot of folks were confused as to why I thought they were three great ones or alternately they couldn't figure out which one I thought was the weak one. And the answers that I got back as to which was the weak one were rather different. So I went to the record, I went to the Doctor Who ratings guide and I found my own review of Apocalypse, which is the one that I figured was the weak one, and I wrote a positive review on it for the ratings guide ten years ago, and I have no recollection of doing that whatsoever. But I'm glad I enjoyed it then, because in the intervening ten years I've forgotten that I actually once enjoyed it. But for me, Genesis is interesting because it is very, very expository in a way that the later New Adventures would not be because it was the first book in the series and it was trying to establish, um, as John Peel says elsewhere in this episode, it was trying to establish Doctor Who not just for the returning fans from the novelizations but also to a wider sci-fi audience. So each of the first several chapters of Genesis is entirely expository whereas later books of course would jump you in in media rest, and good luck figuring out where you were in the complicated plot strand of, of, of the year. Um, for my mind, Genesis is really a successful reintroduction to the series, because you have past doctors, you have the mention of past companions, and of course you have the book taking place during the very first book ever written, which was what we now know as the Epic of Gilgamesh, whereas if Genesis had been commissioned as a standalone three or four years later, it would have looked markedly, markedly different. And then with Exodus, which was the second book I read in 1991, you have Terrence Dix being given a broader landscape than he'd ever been given before, especially considering that ten years earlier he had been writing 90-page novelizations like The Invisible Enemy. So he is playing around with alternate time and different timelines and historical fiction and, of course, doing what Terrence does best, which is bringing back some of his favorite old villains from years past. And in terms of looking at this now, 30 years later, how do you guys feel those first two books stack up to the rest of the NAs, the other 59 books that were to come between then and 1997? I think Exodus in particular is 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 just brilliant for me. It's um, the 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 structure. It's it's something that we we never really saw in Doctor Who for a time travel show. But um, you know, arriving somewhere like that with an alternative history and then traveling back to see how it got like that, it seems like such an obvious thing to do. But it was it was never done on on TV. And maybe it's an idea that Terence Dix had for a while. Maybe couldn't see how it would work on TV. Um, but it's, 
Yeah, and it's one of the more clearly written ones as well. You can tell the breadth of experience that Terence Dix has of writing so many Doctor Who books. It's it's so pacey, um, action packed. It feels meticulously researched as well. Um, or he's made loads of stuff up, I guess, um, <laughs> about the uh, you know the hierarchy and the buildings and and, and all that type of stuff. Um, so it feels uh, like you are there in in, in that time, um, but the you know the the thing about the new adventures being broader and deeper, you it puts you in some very uncomfortable situations. I think where the, the Doctor helping Hitler away from the explosion, um, where the first time that they meet, and then the Doctor sort of having to be saved by Hitler when he. Uh, is is masquerading as a high-ranking Nazi official and, and he's banking on Hitler remembering from the first time. So you've got that position where you're relieved that the Doctor and Ace have been saved, but then you think, oh, God, he's been saved by Hitler, though. That's that's awful. Um, and then the whole, the, the wider thing that he, he has to make sure that history stays on track so that as the war is the only way to get rid of the Nazis and to keep Hitler in place so that somebody more competent doesn't come along and kind of do it better, it's... Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's much more thought-provoking than um, a lot of the TV stories, I think. And the fact that the Doctor later in the novel seems to have Herman Goring on speed dial was a bit of an <laughs> adjustment for me. This was not the Doctor that I was used to, but it's not too dissimilar to the scene in Rosa from a couple of TV seasons ago where the Doctor has to keep history on course by ensuring that Rosa Parks gets arrested for, you know, literally nothing. Definitely, yeah. This first time I've read it since I saw Rosa, and there, there are a lot of parallels there, aren't they, in terms of making sure awful things happen so that a better history can unfold. In theory, in service of the in greater theory. good. Hmm. Uh, well, I guess I mean, I mean to answer your question, Jason. I mean, are these things, uh, are these books more like what comes next? Not really. I I think. Uh, I think they're they're still kind of trying to figure out their shape. John Peel is writing kind of a bit like tar the target novels but he's also kind of writing like the, uh, uh, you know other tv tie-in fiction that was going on at the time um, the star trek novels particularly so so it's it's a bit broader than what's going on the characters kind of talk more like you know they would be talking if they weren't if the characters weren't in a t doing it in a tv station in a tv studio rather uh but it 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 feels so it feels a bit broader and a bit deeper than the than the small screen, but not really. Uh, I love Exodus, uh, but I mean for me, it's it, it it's kind of it's kind of a, a, a weird thing looking back on it. Uh, on the one hand, I, I you know there's parts of it that I you could just you know you you can just picture like you know Mark Ayers or Donna McGlynn doing the music and 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 you could just this this could just fit into season 27 no problem and then there's bits of it that are very expository and talky and and you know a lot of the history bits where you kind of go uh, maybe and 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 you know I have a I have a very kind of um, love hate relationship with Terence and Fanwank, uh, where you know the ending, which has you know a Statenheim remote control from the two doctors being employed. You know, there's a part of me that's like, oh my god, this is so great, and there's a part of me that's like, oh my god, are you doing this? Um, and it's like that throughout. Uh, there's some really clever bits, like like I'll, I'll never ever forget the image of of the. Uh, 
of the warlord uh in you know the two the two regenerate you know in this weird state where he's got a vestigial regeneration hanging out of him and i i love that i love that a lot uh but then you have and but then you have um you know uh then you and i kind of find the nazi bits it's it's kind of not quite the level of simplicity of an episode of Wonder Woman, but it's it's not far off. Like I, I like like he's trying to ape, I think he's trying to ape Herman Wook. You know, there's there's bits of Winds of War in it, and and I kind of appreciate the effort, but it, but you know it, it's it's a very oddly placed with 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 a Time Lord, so it, it's very strange. And uh, Apocalypse, I remember just I, I remember liking. Uh, I also just kind of found it very it was very much like a like a lady or a target um novel which isn't uh i don't think it was like one of the good ones like like uh ghost light or 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 remembrance of the daleks but uh, or curse of fenric but i you know it was it was certainly it was certainly one of the one of the better later ones i'd suppose um it's, it's for me it's revelation that i think kind of suddenly says hey look you can do different things. And I think that's where you start having what becomes the new adventures happening. It really starts with Revelation. And, and you know, there's parts of Revelation that have that same kind of fan, fan wank uh, gag reflex that, you know, I have with Terrence, uh, you know, the, you know, the third doctor sort of reflecting that the, <laughs> that the, that the, that the figure on the posters in Inferno, of, you know, the the Big Brother figure from the Parallel World, was actually one of the future incarnations that was proposed to him in the War Games, and you're just kind of like going, okay, so basically the Jack Kind Doctor took over the, took over the world in, in in the Inferno world, is what you're saying? Um, I felt that you know, I, I I felt that was a little too clever by half, but but at the same time, I was kind of I was kind of like, well, wow, that's um, that's fascinating. I, I also like, uh, but it, it, it's, it's the fact that, you know, none of the doctors that it's a, it's a, it's a story with lots of past doctors, but none of them are explicit. They're all done in, as a, as, as a form of metaphor. And I love that. And I love, and I love the way he employs, Paul employs the, 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 you know, the, the old target novel descriptions. And it's just, it's just very kind. It's a very thought, clever book, but it's also very much like a book, uh, from that era. Like it's, it's an early nineties. It's not, not even an early nineties SF novel. It's more like early nineties literature generally, um, which I really appreciated the ambition of it. I mean, I read it much I read it after I read Love and War and No Futures, so to a certain extent, its impact was kind of blunted on me. But I imagine if I had read it in in '91 when it came out, I would have been quite blown. I would have been quite blown away by it because you can sort of suddenly see that this is someone who said, "Well, I'm doing Doctor Who in prose. How do I do it in prose?" Like it's like, and I think the it wasn't about trying to do the Star Trek novel thing of you know. They talk for a little bit longer than they would in a TV scene. It's it's about it's about how to actually use metaphor and illusion and and prose to actually build the world of Doctor Who. And and I think that was a really really kind of uh, amazing pardon the pun revelation. That's a really interesting <clears throat> set of comments. So I'm of course going to jump on the most frivolous one first. So sure. that phrase blows me away. The Jack Kine Doctor. <laughs> what if 
when Chris Chibnall wrote The Timeless Children, he didn't spend 90 minutes on TV trying to tie into 45 seconds from the brain of Morbius. What if that montage of all the doctors and villains and friends ends with the Jack kind doctor's black and white face zooming into the camera, and you realize that he was the villain all along? <laughs> Might have been better than what we got on screen. You never know. Might well have been. Maybe we'll see the Jack kind doctor in future novels. I know there's a... Obverse Books has uh, the new anthology now of the eight uh, pre-Hartnell Morbius doctors each doing things. They really should have added the Jack Kind doctor doing evil things yeah. in the in the Infernoverse. But you, you also mentioned the contrast between uh, the first four writers. So the first three NA writers were all alumni of the Target novelizations, which were assumed by Virgin, which then launched uh, the NAs. So you have three men and their the, I think respectively late 30s, 40s, and early to mid 50s, and they are writing novelizations plus. The fourth author is probably what later made the NAs the NAs, because instead of just going to the established old hands and the professionals, people who could write a 40,000 word novelization in a week and a half, you are suddenly getting the younger generation of British fandom, who literally grew up on the show, usually during the Pertwee era, and they've been writing their own fanfic and writing their own zines, and they are suddenly bringing their ideas from their own little uh, bubble of fandom into the N.A.s, and it's shocking how many of the N.A. writers later went into television, and how many later ended up writing for, or in a couple of cases, show-running Doctor Who itself. So... Not only is Revelation the first book that treats the N.A.s as if, you know, these aren't just novelizations plus. These are going to be proper novels in their own regard. But with uh, Paul Cornell, I think he was 23 years old when he wrote this. So it's pretty amazing that you have such a young writer compared to the other three. And all of a sudden he is bringing in philosophical concepts and treating this like a proper novel and writing in metaphor. And then, of course, uh, 15 years later, we get him writing for the very first season of New Who, and he is writing Father's Day, which is not an adaptation of Revelation, but certainly borrows uh, a lot of the themes, including taking sanctuary in the church from the monsters outside. So not only is Revelation completely breaking the mold and telling future writers, this is what you can be doing with an N.A. rather than writing a novelization plus, it also amusingly becomes a template for the formula of the later TV series. So the books, the TV becomes the books, and then the books become the TV. Uh, tell Dexter we've uh, come full circle. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, it's, I think, I think your point, Jason, though, that that you know the age, the age difference is important because I think Paul was writing from you know a generation. Uh, Paul's work kind of appeals more to the kind of writing that was going on, I would say, in the 80s and early 90s in, 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 Briti- in British fiction particularly. I mean, it's very, there's, there's elements of Ian Banks, there's elements uh, you know, of a lot of other authors and, and, and that, of that era, whereas I think, you know, Terence appealed to Herman Wouk or, you know, and they, the other people were in their 30s and 40s and were very much kind of writing to the sort of figures of their time. And I, I think the generational thing changes it up profoundly because I, I, and, and I think that, and I think that's a very kind of, uh, 
uh, I, I think that's a very important element. I mean, I remember reading, uh, I remember reading, reading, reading uh, Revelation and and thinking, oh yeah, there's 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 elements of of Ian Banks is the bridge, and there's element there's elements of of walking on glass, you know, uh, here and there. I, I mean, I don't know if Paul was conscious or or if it's implied. I don't even know if Paul's even read Ian Banks, but but I imagine he has, and I imagine and and I can sort of see those elements. And I think that's a very different kind of literary influence. And in the same way that the Hinchcliffe years, you know, the influences that they, that Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes have is very different than say the influences that, uh, that Innes Lloyd had, you know, there, you know, there, you know, there's, there's more generational shift that comes from, you know, kids of the forties and fifties, uh, doing Doctor Who than kids from the kids from the thirties. So yeah. So anyways, that, that was a long rambling thought and I apologize. No, it's, it's fascinating <laughs> because when I, when I was on reality bomb to discuss Terrence Dix after he passed away, I think I mentioned, or I wanted to mention that when you read Blood Harvest, which was Terrence's 1994 NA, he is deeply steeped in the pop culture, and he is writing what he loves, and he's taking all his influences and putting them on the page. The problem is he's 20 years older than everyone else, so unless you are his age, a lot of those references are going to sail over your head, especially as I was only 20 years old when Blood Harvest came out, and it took me 20 years to grow into the book. He's doing the same as everyone else. He's writing what he loves. It's just that what he loves is from a past yeah. generation and is no longer current, whereas... Uh, Paul Cornell certainly his pop culture references are all uh, completely contemporary. But well, I think what's quite nice is the sense of the passing of the baton here by having the character of Hemmings uh, move from Terence's book into Paul's book. It is it is almost like passing it to to the next generation um, via that character. And as you said, Graham, you've got the, the Exodus, which could fit into season twenty seven. You've got. The seventh Doctor, I think, at this the height of his powers. It's that silver nemesis, act as if you own the place. Always works, um, and he's he's just you know strolling into Nazi headquarters and all these different places and and ordering uh, people around. Um, and then, in contrast, in Revelation, he's um, at kind of his lowest ebb. He's most vulnerable. Um, it's 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 a, it's a kind of total opposite, isn't it? As uh, as he goes from from one book to the other. Um, and, and in terms of, of let's like, say, the influence of Revelation um, in Paul Cornell's script for Father's Day, but what, what strikes me reading it again is the sort of imagery and ideas that resonate throughout the rebooted series. Um, I just made it a notes as I went through it. It's like buildings on the moon, the child in a space suit. Um, you've got a sort of digitally created afterlife. The idea that the Doctor can see alternative timelines, which um, you saw in Fires of Pompeii and Kill the Moon. Then lines like "Fear makes companions of us all," and even "World enough and time," um, which uh, you know, used in Stephen Moffat's scripts, um, all crop up in here originally, don't they? There's, it feels hugely um, influent, influential on on the new series, particularly Stephen Moffat era. And of course, Paul Cornell himself novelized the "World enough and time" script for Stephen Moffat, as Mark and I discussed on a previous trap one. Um, twice upon a time. No. Twice upon a time. Oh, twice yeah, upon twice a time, time. Yes. I knew it had time in the title there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can you can see how they come from the same uh, the same generation, I think, and the, the same sort of tradition of uh, of being fan writers, and then 
having the same the same thoughts and, and ideas about Doctor Who. But being the first published novel from a 23-year-old young man who's been steeped in his fandom bubble, does Revelation go too far into fanishness, and does, does it spend too much time trying to break down the Doctor rather than tell a new story? Like, uh, Graham, you mentioned that Terence Dick certainly is reveling in revel, reveling in his um, Doctor Who bona fides. He even has the Sisterhood of Karn. By the time by the time Exodus comes out, they are marketing the Elixir of Life as a lotion that you can uh, <laughs> rub on a wound. Uh, that's uh, certainly a lot of continuity in all the books. But since Revelation entirely depends on your knowledge of all these corners of the TV show, including, of course, uh, the Jack Kind Doctor. Does Revelation fail to succeed because it requires you to be as much of a Doctor Who fan as Paul Cornell was? And Mark, you've uh, finished reading the book quite recently. Mm -hmm. What's your take on that? Yeah, I finished rereading it this morning. Um, I think, I mean, I I don't know how many non-fans would have been picking this up. Because uh, it's it's yeah. two or three years after the series is finished with with pretty low viewing figures anyway, um, so I think it's, it's marketed for Doctor Who fans. The first time I read it, I, I wouldn't have anywhere near seen all of the the classic stories. I don't think, um, but I still got a lot out of it. But I the the feeling that I got was it was at least very continuity heavy, and we've got the the past Doctors or some of the past Doctors in there. But it almost is um, sort of a bookend to all that. By the end of it, the Doctor has come back out of his own brain, his own mind, learnt the lessons he needs to, freed his conscience. Um, it feels like a new start at that point, like the um, like they're maybe done with the self-reflection and the, the, the digging into the continuity. And it's a new Doctor who is going to be less... Uh, less carefree with with his companion's life and and not take lives he can if he can help it um which you know arguable how uh, how much that actually took hold in the new adventures i suppose ron howard narrator he wasn't <laughs> <laughs> but it, maybe paul Cardell's intention was to uh to really delve into it in one book and then you know sort of have that at the end to it and, and move on from there I kind of take the opposite view in some ways. I, I do, th I, I, to Jason mostly. I, I, I don't think it's, in the first place, I think, uh, as, you, as you said, the, 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 show, the, the books are being written for Doctor Who fans. So it's going, you know, I don't think, and I don't think Paul's approach is any more extreme or any more, um, any more, more than Terence in, in, in Time Worm Exodus. So I kind of feel like the train left the station ages ago. <laughs> what I think is interesting is, is Paul's approach is radically different. Paul's approach is to say, these, these aren't just encountering, you know, the past incarnations. These are the past incarnations as metaphors for parts of the Doctor's psyche, which is a very kind, which is a fascinating approach. Uh, you know, the, the idea of, of the Davison Doctor being, being the Doctor's conscience and, and being sort of, un, you know, this, this kind of, you know, Promethean figure is, 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 that is next level stuff. Um, and I don't think, you know, that is, that is very different 
than, you know, having the Statenheim remote control suddenly turn up or, you know. Uh, uh, so I kind of think uh, it's, it's, it's exploring it in an interesting way. It's exploring it in a way that's driven by pros and driven by how does this work effectively as a book. Um, and, 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 it, and it's a way of world building. And yeah, there are things in that book that I didn't necessarily just understand, period. But I let it kind of I, it washes over you, and I think, and I think, you know, people who don't necessarily have all the lore or don't remember the Jack Kind Doctor uh, or the Jack Kind Valyard, even possibly, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think those people, you know, just, you know, get something, get something interesting out of, out of it by through the context of the of the dialogue. So, I, I, no, I, I actually think this is a really intelligent way of 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 doing a doctor who book and and it was the it was a radical way too like tv tie-ins do not do that tv tie-ins do the john peel thing of the characters talk for a lot longer than what they do on television uh to actually build it through the build the sort of metaphor and prose and and the kind of world building that paul does this doesn't happen as Douglas Adams says in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Like, like this is not, this is not how people do TV tie-ins, generally speaking. Uh, I know certainly the 1990s were a golden age of uh, TV tie-ins. John Peel also wrote for the Quantum Leap book series. Yeah, and my college roommate was not in any way a Doctor Who fan, but he was a huge Quantum Leap fan. We watched the Quantum Leap reruns on U.S. cable TV every night instead of, you know, studying or making sure that we graduated from college or ended up with good careers. But we read, we had a lot of those Quantum Leap books dotted around the apartment, and, you know, John's is excellent because John is John Peel, but those books did not have any internal continuity, and they would spell characters' names differently from book to book, and each book was set within its own mini self-contained universe. And when they went back and wrote the Quantum Leap origin book, it was completely derivative and uh, not nearly as good as what the new adventures could be. So we have not talked much about the Nigel Robinson book, The Apocalypse, which, as I said at the top of the panel, was the one book that I actively disliked in 1991, and then ten years later decided that I actually had enjoyed large chunks of it, and then ten years after that forgot that I had ever enjoyed it. I guess my 1991 memory being overriding. So let's talk about what I liked about Apocalypse. You start off with an epigraph from the novelization of Logopolis, which for me is my foundational Doctor Who text. It was the very first novelization that I was introduced to at age 11, and it's still one of my favorite TV stories. And then the first two chapters of Apocalypse take us in utilizing the second Doctor's era. Nigel Robinson had been the editor of the novelizations, and he had been instrumental in getting a lot of those Second Doctor stories into print, and he had novelized The Underwater Menace very shortly before this. So, while the other new adventures in the Time Worm cycle heavily feature past Doctors, Apocalypse actually starts out as a Second Doctor missing adventure. So that I thought was interesting. And then, of course, in Genesis itself, you have the Doctor becomes the third Doctor for two chapters at the end of the book in order to help resolve the plot. 
Then, of course, the third doctor doesn't do it very well and causes all the problems. And then in Revelation, you wind up with every doctor except the sixth for reasons which become clear in Love and War the following year. Almost every doctor shows up and has a piece, whether they're themselves or as a metaphor. Um, this, I think, was the first time that Doctor Who in print had entertained the notion that all these doctors were different people, and yet the same. You weren't having these massive multi-doctor stories. You weren't having books that opened with past Doctor flashbacks, except maybe for, you know, one page in Remembrance of the Daleks. How important is this to the Doctor Who narrative going forward? The same notion that the Doctor is one person, but that every memory that he's ever had is going to come back and be important to him later and that things that he did in a missing adventure in season four are going to directly influence the NAs, which is, you know, for want of a better word, seasons 27 through seasons 33. How do you guys feel about that? I don't think it's... Uh, it's it's funny. I, I mean, there is, there is the, there's an answer within the universe of the books themselves, and I think there's an answer without, without them. And I think the fact is, is that having the intervention of past doctors in the books gave this new range of books a value add that to people who were coming to read them it said hey uh we're not having to just novelize a straight a straight up story that featured one doctor we can engage other doctors and i think the novelty of that in 1991 even through to the mid-90s cannot be underestimated. Um, I recently uh, looked through the first Decalogue book, which was the first published uh, Doctor Who short fiction anthology, and it was also the first time they ever had any kind of stories from past Doctors. It is not a very good anthology. Uh, but at the time, I remember just being overjoyed by it because... It was the first time I could read stories of past doctors in a published format. So I was really excited by it. Um, I was really excited by stories that I that really, I, I don't think are particularly great. Uh, there's a story called The Golden Door, which just happens to feature the first doctor and Dodo and the sixth doctor in the same story. And it is so, and when I reread it about, 20, 30 years later, I'm like going, the novelty was the fact that I got to read this and have both, both of them, both doctors involved, right? And it was like, it's not a, it's not a great story. So yeah, I, I kind of feel like the same way about, you know, the use of the Troughton doctor in Apocalypse or the use of the Pertwee doctor in, in, and, and the use of the fourth doctor, you know, in, in Genesis. It's, it's, it doesn't, you know, it's there because it's a kind of hey kids we can we can we can use past doctors to good effect and it, and in some ways i think it's a great idea i mean within the universe itself the doctor is a long lived fighter of injustices you know in many many incarnations why shouldn't he be tripping over himself like the doctor leaves such a large footprint of course the doctor should should you know encounter it in different ways and in different angles and and i think that's the kind of thing that Nigel Robinson is attempting to essay in Apocalypse. I don't know if he really does it quite well, but, but, I, but you know, so I kind of take the view that maybe not, but I think 
it's too tempting a thing to not to do in 1991. That is a great point. It reminds me of the line, the two-line exchange in Transit by Ben Aronovich, which came out the following year. Someone, uh, the doctor tells somebody, history still happens even when I'm not around. And the mm-hmm. response is, the response is, only by accident. <laughs> and then Nigel Robinson's next book, A Birthright in 1994, is mostly a doctor free book where Benny is the main character, but the doctor has so much influence. I think Nigel, after he read Revelation, said, oh, so that's how the new adventures are done. And then his next book was much more in keeping with the... Uh, Revelation and keeping the Doctor as a mythical force who is directly influential on in everything you do, even when he only appears in two pages of, of the novel. So uh, certainly, I think having the past Doctors in the Time Worm books sets the way forward, and it really helps propel the line into what it eventually became. To the point where All Consuming Fire, which is the Sherlock Holmes Doctor Who crossover, opens with the first Doctor and Susan uh, w- w- way back when. Yeah, at this point, we've only had three multi-doctor stories in in twenty-six years. All of the, uh, especially in the UK, where we we didn't get the the cable repeats that uh, that, that you know enjoyed in the states and and Australia, where it was just it seems like Doctor Who was just constantly shown. You know, they they weren't all available on uh, on VHS over here or anything. So those little glimpses of past Doctors were very tantalising, I think, and uh, uh, yeah, definitely something that. Um, that, that you say they got their, their fans engaged and excited and and probably uh you know kind of a bit of a proof of concept for the missing adventures um that, that ran in parallel as well um because that was another yeah another successful range yeah and i think the missing adventure i think the missing adventures ends up being where all this lands is because they sort of realize that the power of and the value of having these past doctors sort of pop up again and again and again made the re- made them realize that we should just do a range around it, and 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 you know it they it worked quite well. I'm you know so no I totally agree. And you wind up with a proper multi doctor story in the Missing Adventures, Cold Fusion, which has the fifth and seventh doctors on opposite sides of the same war. Uh, the point that I wanted to make is that when the NAs come out, I had just turned 18 years old. That means that when I saw the Sylvester McCoy years on PBS in the States, I was uh, 15, 16, 17. And that's a very dangerous time to watch new episodes of your favorite series, because I was old enough to say, well, Doctor Who is babyish for me, because I enjoyed it when I was 11, and now I'm 15 and 16, and I have to find new things to enjoy. And I was young enough to not understand any of what they were trying to do, so all of the anti-Thatcher stuff and the medical metaphorical stuff of the Cardinal era sailed so far over my head that I didn't even realize it was there until years and years later, which is a long-winded way of saying I didn't like The Seventh Doctor and Ace at the time when I bought those first books in 1991. I was a Doctor Who fan, but I wasn't particularly a fan of that era. So for me, and this is 1991 Jason talking, most definitely not 2021 Jason talking, for me, having those other doctors was a way for me to enjoy, quote-unquote, my doctors in the NAs if I wasn't particularly crazy about the, the two co-leads at the time. So for me, it opened up a window. By the time the MAs came around, paradoxically, I was all in to the uh, Virgin Seventh Doctor, the Virgin Publishing Seventh Doctor, I should say. And at that point, the Missing Adventures became almost 
an afterthought for me, and the N.A. was always the book that I read first when I got the two books at the same time. So the N.A. is directly influenced my view of the Seventh Doctor, and it made me go from disliking the Cartmel era to being a huge, uh, passionate Seventh Doctor defender. So as we wrap up this panel, I'm wondering from each of you, what role did the N.A.'s play in cultivating your fandom or perfecting your fandom or changing your view on the seventh or in fact on any other doctor's era that's a tricky one for me i don't think the answer is it did uh i was a huge fan of 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 the mccoy doctor uh you know i his first television adventure started when i was 17 going on 18 so i was very um so uh, you know, I was kind. Of, I was. I was. I was. I was very much into him. It took me forever to w- watch all his stories. In fact, I was still getting uh, tapes of. I guess the. I guess the Maryland uh, PBS station from John Blum back in the back in the early nineties uh, to sort of fill in gaps uh, because there were stories I'd never seen like Ghostlight or uh, I think uh, all of uh, uh, or the happiness patrol or the greatest show in the galaxy. So there's a lot of stuff I hadn't seen even as the new adventures were starting. Um, so for me, it didn't necessarily do that. What it did was it gave me uh, what it did was it gave me doctor who to look forward to. Um, and that was the kind of gift that I got from that guy in the Who shop. And when I discovered that the new adventures were actually really great novels that were trying to kind of preserve the legacy of Doctor Who, and I was able to sort of go into it more wholeheartedly. And I think it, 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 so if it did anything, it kept me being a Doctor Who fan and it gave me, uh, something to argue about with you, Jason, on Records Doctor Who, and it gave me, <laughs> it gave me, uh, you know. So I think it, I think it kept the flame going for me, and and I think that's that's, you know, in some ways uh, a more important thing than you know, did it did it give offer me a fresh perspective on, on Sylvester McCoy? I mean, the thing I wanted, I I, I thought of when you were talking about uh, when you were talking about your own journey, Jason, was that was that I actually don't. Feel, feel like the other authors in that cycle other than Paul particularly like Sylvester McCoy's Doctor. Um, I, and I think one of my reactions that, you know, 22, 24-year-old Graham had when he, re-read, when he read these, you know, later on was I, I got a vague whiff of kind of, I don't really like this Doctor, so I'm just going to, you know. So, you know, in the case of Exodus, it's a very good portrayal of the Doctor, but I, I feel it's a very Troughton-esque kind of portrayal of the doctor uh you know uh genesis i just don't i just don't feel i i, I you know his 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 kind of you know let's go to the pertwee doctor is kind of like oh yeah okay i get it you want to go to, you want to go to your fave and and even even the use of the trouton doctor kind of felt kind of felt like it signaled that you know i'm not i'm kind of bored by this doctor so i i really kind of felt uh I felt, but I felt like Revelation fully embraced uh, the McCoy Doctor, and I, and I really appreciated it for that. And it was a, uh, so yeah. Uh, but yeah, all, overall, it didn't necessarily give me a, a fresh perspective on Doctor Who. But what it did was, I, I think I'm a Doctor Who fan, and kept being a Doctor Who fan all through the '90s because of this range. All through what later became called the Wilderness Years, which for us were not Wilderness Years at all because we were enjoying new product every month. 
But Graham, you talk exactly. about you and me arguing 30 years ago, which, uh, how did we get that old, first Jesus. of all? Yes. You, I vividly <laughs> recall now a conversation that you and I had on IRC, because when Head Games came out, the Steve Lyons book, I remember you thinking at the time that this book sort of broke your fandom because of the way it portrayed the Doctor. And my response to you is, just wait, there's a Terrence books coming out next month. He'll be writing the Seventh Doctor as the Second Doctor, and you can enjoy him again. So, by different authors pitching their favorite Doctor into the Seventh Doctor's head, uh, it certainly gave you more variety, I think. You could, you could go from a Steve Lyons doing the darkest book in the history of books to Terrence Dix doing a novelization of a direct-to-video uh, Bill Baggs production, and it still could fit comfortably in the same line next to each other. And that's why Head Games, I don't think, couldn't actually break your fandom. If you recall no, that particular no. exchange, I think I, I think I I think yeah I I do dimly recall that exchange. I I think my I, I, I there was sort of a a thesis being pushed by by Head Games, which I felt was I felt was a little too dangerous. I felt like I I felt like it was a, a it was almost kind of a reverse snobbery towards the books. I mean that's that's probably for the next podcast you do about about the new adventures. But I I do think there there was I do think there was kind of. A, uh, you know, a books-only kind of strand of, uh, of fans who were like, well, this TV show was this thing we loved and it was long gone and let's, you know, let's, you know, and, and so, you know, let's create a, a faux doctor that's more like the TV doctor and just make fun of it. And, and I really found that, I really found that element of head games at the time very disquieting. And I, and I remember being very angry about it. But as you said, I mean, uh, it wasn't it wasn't shakedown that necessarily you know got me back on on board but you know but there were other books in that in the next months that you know it, of course it it, it it developed and you know damaged goods came out like you know within a within a year or two of that so it, you know which is I still think the best doctor who novel ever written so so yeah I mean obviously these things these things change and uh, mark this being uh, your podcast, I'm going to give you the final word. I'm going to pose the same question to you, but I'm going to flip it slightly because you became a Doctor Who fan, as you say, during the McCoy era, whereas I suspect Graham and I both grew up during the endless Tom Baker, Peter Davis, and Tom Baker reruns on various strands of PBS or Canadian television. So for you, coming in as a Seventh Doctor fan first, what window did the NAs give you onto the previous world that you might not have had access to not watching the same reruns that Graham and I grew up with of the 70s era yeah I think I think it probably just continued to establish him as the doctor for me um I'd he's the one at that point I'd seen the most of on tv the obviously the novels were coming out I'd read the target books but it's obviously not the same as experiencing the other doctors uh, which I would have been doing concurrently through collecting the VHSs as they as they started to sort of trickle out. Um they were on Sky over here, but I didn't have Sky for a long time, so I was I was um dependent on my auntie sometimes recording it for me, so I got bits and pieces here and there. Um but yeah, he, he was the McCoy doctor was the doctor for me for, for, for all that time really, I think. That was uh that just helped to establish that and then give him more companions as well. Um because I think you know, the, people forget now, but as you two have alluded to, like McCoy was not a popular doctor with the older fans. Um, it's sort of the thing that people are going, that um, Geordie fans are going through at the moment, really, isn't it? 
um, of of you know being a fan of a doctor who who isn't popular with the with a large portion of the fandom. And the first couple of conventions I went to, I think the first one I went to was like nineteen ninety six, and it was saying that oh yeah McCoy's my favorite doctor he's the one I grew up with and a lot of people are like oh no you, you don't know anything you know <laughs> um but it, it probably helped in some way to legitimize him in, in, in that way I suppose and maybe that's what they were doing by putting the past doctors in as well was to um to legitimize him in a way in the fans in the eyes of the uh, of the older fans by having him directly interact with the previous incarnations and things but with Jody is it so much that she's not popular with most of fandom or is that it's a tiny but incredibly vocal and politically right-wing faction of fandom that is flooding out everyone else. I certainly have I have some issues with some of the writing during stories that Jody stars in, um, but I think most people are very positive on Jody herself, apart from that small uh, faction gathering behind a particular hashtag. But... Uh, with the Seventh Doctor, it was the Doctor himself that I objected to when I was uh, 15, 16, 17, because he was behaving in undoctorish ways and being manipulative, and I was very upset with the curse of Fenric when he has to destroy Ace's faith in him. Number one, I had missed uh, him talking to himself and that he had to do this because he had to let uh, the Hemovore attack him. Uh, number two... I was 16 years old, so very emotionally vulnerable. So when the Doctor is trying to destroy Ace's faith, I took that incredibly personally. Um, so whereas I enjoy what Jodie is doing and I enjoy her Doctor, even if I don't enjoy the stories, I had major issues with the Seventh Doctor and the morality of some of those stories when I was 15, 16, 17. The N.A.s were invaluable for me in exploring why the Doctor did what he did, and the books that identify him as going, up, oh, Doctor, you've gone too far this time, like in Lucifer Rising, and he the, the amends his character and grows and evolves. Which isn't a question, I guess, so much more as a statement, as people say at convention panels. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of books that do that. <laughs> as we will find as we go through it, is that there's a lot of books that sort of, uh, you know, want to... I mean, and that is the danger of a range being written by fans in their 20s of a show that they deeply loved since they were children, is that, is that you know, people, is that, especially in the new adventures, there's a plethora of authors who see this as their shot at making their definitive statement on Doctor Who. I mean, and I think that is the kind of... I think that's the kind of the blessing and curse of, of the new adventures. Uh, you know, uh, the new adventures also proceed to have the first twenty thousand words often being the best thing about it because that that was the, that was their sample <laughs> that got them the, that got them the commission. And then all of a sudden, oh shit, we have to go write the rest. Um, so, 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 which is a lot harder. Uh, and I think, you know, but I think, so I think that is also a recurring theme, but that end, that end, I'm going to, I'm going to pin down the doctor and the doctor is going to, you know, have to come to terms with, with, uh, with, you know, with his manipulativeness is, it, it becomes a very kind of uh, well sung song as the new adventures progress. Every book has to be the most important book ever written because usually it's the author's first and they have so much to tell us. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, Mark, you've done a crash read of the 1991 books for the first time in years. Has this turned you back on to the N.A.s? And are you going to go and immediately stream the next uh, 
three or four books to continue on the journey. I, I do intend to read some more of them, um, but I have a huge pile of to-read books as it is, so um, they, they're going to have to jostle for space in that, unfortunately. But yeah, I'm def- definitely going to revisit some of them. All right, uh, Mark, uh, thanks so much for being a uh, guest on my show, so to speak. Graham, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. This was a lot of fun. Uh, we'll be coming back in the coming months to talk about uh, the 1992-1993 books and then going all the way on up to Lung Barrow. So I certainly hope you two can join me again. And awesome. uh, Jason, I'll throw it back over to you. Thanks so much to Graham for joining us, and my thanks, as always, to Mark for allowing me to take over the format for a couple of hours. My apologies to Joe Ford of Hamster with a Blunt Penknife and the Nymon Be Praised podcasts, who meant to contribute to the episode and who will hopefully be joining us for the next installment in a few months' time. You can find Trap1 on Twitter at, at Trap1 underscore, or you can reach me directly at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels, also on Twitter. You can find us at trap1.podbean.com. This episode was written and produced by yours truly and edited by Mark. Theme music composed by Dudley Simpson. Mark, we'll be back next time for some more outstanding content. In the meantime, good night now. <laughs>